Welcome to Nat Chats With. I'm sitting down with my friend Michael today, who is a doctor, Michael Jones. Thank you for having me. Thank you for talking to me. You're one of these people that when I talk to you, no conversation is a short conversation. You've helped me understand things about myself that are less about me and more about human physiology. We all like to think that we're in control and not our physiology. And, well, in many ways, we're in control of things that we don't know we're in control of, and we aren't in control of things we want to be. I think one of the big things we don't like is uncertainty. And when we realize or think we're out of control, that gives us a lot of uncertainty about our future because we can't have a direct influence on it. So we want to either be in control or at least feel in control so we don't freak out. Which directly points to a cognitive distortion saying, I'm in control. I know myself. I know this. I know that. And I don't literally say that to myself, but possibly some part of me is pointing to it. Yeah, you're in control. You're figuring it out. And then I have a conversation with you and it's obvious. Here's a whole new thing you need to consider. I have no resistance to pointing it out in someone else, but we have a resistance to point it out in ourselves. It's like, I'll feel in control as long as I don't acknowledge this little thing that this little evidence that pops up, this thing keeps happening in my life in different circumstances. Maybe I'm the common denominator. We, we resist that because it's savage, but if you kind of just embrace it fully, then you kind of let it go. Yeah. So people don't even know what we're talking about yet. We're being really cryptic. <laughs> sorry. Is it, no, don't be sorry. <laughs> the topic of our conversation is centered on pain. Not that pain is necessarily what we're going to be talking about. It's just the result of what we're going to be talking about. The sentence you said to me earlier was pain is not a lifestyle flex. And that's a really poignant sentence because most of us are in pain in one form or another, almost all the time. And you have a take on pain that I haven't heard before. Every time we talk, I feel people need to know this. I'm glad we're finally sitting down so that people can hear this. Before I get too deep, which I probably do too quickly, is the thing about pain is it's a, a warning from your body saying that there are eminent physiological consequences to what you're doing. And to cease and desist or slow down or something, but you, if you continue, there will be consequences. And so we see that pain marker and either we're so fixated on the goal that we're like, whatever, if the pain goes away, that means it really wasn't anything. When really, that just means we were able to put it out of our mind or our body just couldn't keep sending this signal, like saying, stop, 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 because we weren't listening. The other thing that happens that fuels it is it becomes a lifestyle flex where pain is a barrier to entry to a lot of things, either emotional pain or physical pain. And when we can push past that and someone else can't, we're winning. Before we go too far, one of the reasons I want to interrupt with this is because it frustrates me when I'm listening to a podcast and in the middle of the podcast, they refer to something that the guest has written or a website that they have. And then later, I'm like searching through the podcast, trying to find what they said. I want to mention that right at the beginning in case somebody 
listens and then goes, oh, I'll catch that again later. It's still at the beginning. And those two things are the two books that you've written and your two websites. And so World of Alphas is your most current book. Does it have a subtitle? Pain is not a lifestyle flex. Okay. Worldofalphas.org is the website for that. And then your first book, Conflict and Connection, Anatomy of Mind and Emotion. And that's conflictandconnection.com. Correct. For anybody who wants to look into that. Okay, cool. Let's start with where you started with the realizations you had. I'll start deeper than we've actually talked before because that's a little indicative of some things that just popped in my head. And so I'll just go with it. My biggest fear growing up was to be controlled by fear. If you think about that, you can see how that can become a problem. At some point, you're like 40 feet in the air next to your dirt bike. Hmm, maybe I have a problem. Was I doing this just to prove that fear wasn't controlling me? Or did I objectively want to subject myself to this much risk? You know, wake up four hours later. And that was just the game I was playing was anytime something, whether it was pain or anything, I wanted to prove that I could do it. That led me to a lot of things and eventually to medical school. I remember one time just seeing wads of hair collecting in the shower and thinking genetically, since my mom's father has a whole head of hair and he's well into his years, I should not be losing hair. That doesn't make sense. And then I thought, oh, it's just stress and just put it out of my mind. The next thing was... Because you knew you were stressed at the time then. Yeah. I mean, I was... You're like, I'm stressed and I'm losing hair. Okay. This has got to be what this is. Maybe for the sake of transparency, you know, in one of your other uh, podcasts, you talked about just speaking your truth. And I was so stressed and I had this goal so much in mind that I was dreaming at night that I was studying. Uh, at some point, I couldn't separate the two. I thought I was crazy for a bit. Then I just realized I'm stressed and super boring because I'm dreaming about studying. <laughs> so I should have seen the signs that like I was definitely stressed, but I just I just couldn't see it. And it wasn't until a few key things. One was my first clinical rotation was in Florida, and it was with a cardiologist. And I kept feeling my pulse up to that point when I felt like kind of funny. And I'm like, I have like a weird rhythm thing. That's kind of alarming. You know, that's not good. Your heart has to beat every day, all day. Um, Were you feeling it physically too? You're like, yeah, I'm not right. Yeah, both. I remember like, oh, now I have the opportunity to just do an EKG. And so I did. And I show it to the doctor because there was what are called preventricular contractions And he looks at it for like just one second, says, it's just caffeine and hands it back to me. He's like, you're fine. Well, I was drinking caffeine at the time. And so I thought, oh, okay, that should be an easy fix. Although it really wasn't an easy fix because I was drawn to the caffeine because I had to get stuff done. I needed to study. So it wasn't until fast forward a few more years till right after I graduated, I was working at a clinic and taking blood pressures and and the doctor let me just do as many EKGs as I want. And each time someone would have PVCs, I would feel when I'm feeling their pulse, uh, I would tell them, oh, do you drink caffeine? They'd say yes. I'd be like, well, just stop that. And that's that. Then I had a guy and he's like, no, I don't drink caffeine. I was like, well, do you, are you on any sort of stimulants, you know, Adderall or any of that? And he says, no. 
Really? And so that kind of broke this, you know, there was cycle a cycle of, oh, it's just caffeine. Right. This I, plus this must equal don't drink caffeine. So then I was like, well, what is this other factor? Well, what is always associated with caffeine? Like when do people drink caffeine? When you need to get stuff done. So what if the caffeine was a coping mechanism for what was really causing the stress was this to-do list that was way too long? Does this mean his body is producing something akin to caffeine if he's not taking a stimulant? So what's happening inside his body is kind of the equivalent of putting caffeine into him. Yeah, it's alpha mode to define it. You know, an alpha is someone who rises to the occasion, I guess you could say, that, that steps up and gets stuff done, uh, especially when no one else can or wants to. Alpha mode is in that process of stepping up when it's too much. It's not physiologically sustainable. We're capable as animals of having a very acute stress response and running away from a bear or a lion because it's a matter of life and death. So our whole physiology gears up for that one thing, which is running or fighting. And what's essential in that is only your muscles, nothing else. And everything else is just subject to being turned into fuel for the fight, which, you know. Or the run. Yeah. If you're running away from a bear, what good is your short-term memory or your immune system if you're dead? So you sacrifice those things so that you don't die. But there are so many bears in life. And we get addicted to bears and that's when it becomes a problem when we go into alpha mode for something that's not life or death. I want to jump back to what you just said about digestion and sleeping because the person listening isn't going to know why you just reference those. You're saying that what your body does is go, sleeping and digestion aren't important right now. Yeah. I need to make all the physiological things happen so that I can run. Right. Because that's number one. Not digestion, not sleep, not anything else, just running. Okay. Yeah. So we have two main physiological systems in our body. We have fight or flight, which is fueled by adrenaline, and we have rest and digest fueled by acetylcholine. The fact that we live in a society where we don't know what the opposite of adrenaline is and we just want adrenaline kind of shows the mentality of the world, hence the title World of Alphas. And you would think as important as the word adrenaline is in society and in the way we are, that everybody would have heard the word acetylcholine. Yeah. And whoever's listening, put your hand up if you've never heard that word before. And I would be willing to bet the majority of people just put their hand up. Like, yeah. no idea. And they balance each other and one turns off the other. We have four basic animal functions we're capable of fighting eating, sleeping, and sex. Eating and sleeping, you know, rest and digest, is acetylcholine-driven. Um, sex is a combination of both, and fighting or running away is adrenaline-driven. So cortisol is an interesting thing because it's just an amplifier for whichever one of those things you're doing. Because one of the main purposes of cortisol is it raises your blood sugar at night while you're not eating. You're not consuming sugar, and despite what any fad diet person says, your brain and your heart need sugar to to operate, and those are the two most important organs. And so your body, especially when you're sleeping, right? Yeah, because you you have to 
that's a whole nother thing about what happens when you're stressed is you don't go into your REM sleep and you don't process the emotional content in a way that this is kind of going a little deep real quick. But the thing is, is that when you experienced whatever emotional content during the day, it had the presence of adrenaline. When you're in REM sleep, that's the only time your brain doesn't have adrenaline in it. And so you actually reprocess that emotional content without the visceral response to it. Modern research shows that PTSD is actually the inability to process that emotional content without the presence of adrenaline. And so they have these drugs they're trying to create to force that to be the case. Well, why aren't they sleeping is the real question. So acetylcholine is a very important thing for sleep. Mm -hmm. Okay. There's a difference between being sedated and and actually sleeping. If there's a great book, Why We Sleep uh, by Matthew Walker, highly recommend it. It's really dense, but he talks about the difference. And there's lots of things we can do to sedate ourselves that don't actually cause us to go into sleep and especially not REM sleep, like alcohol, marijuana, lots of all these other things. Yeah, they might help you fall into sedation, right? You actually just, you know, close your eyes and not know what's happening, but you're not actually sleeping and you're definitely not processing that emotional content. And the thing is, is that the solution isn't to stiff arm your brain into like, take this medication and get that REM sleep. The answer is, well, why aren't you sleeping? It's because you can't sleep while your adrenaline's still going. You could be sedated while your adrenaline's still going. All the research that goes into loss of sleep, which is really easy to back up because you can quantify how much sleep someone has or doesn't have and see the effects. And so they know what it does to your mental health and the odds of things like schizophrenia. They know what it does to your immune system and it reduces the cells that catch cancer by four times. So you're four times more likely to get cancer if you don't sleep. We know that, but the question is, why aren't we sleeping? And I don't know why more research hasn't gone into it. And it can't be that it's just hard to quantify, but I don't see any other reason why they haven't because it's so obvious. I wonder if it has something to do with the assumptions that the average person makes, you know, whether they're a professional or not, we think we know what sleep is Mm -hmm. because we do it every night. We kind of think we know what's happening when we're sleeping. And so we have our biases stop our exploration of this thing that we assume we already understand when the reality is we need to understand it better, which doesn't mean we don't understand it better, but your average person doesn't. We're sitting here saying or starting to have a conversation about how freaking big a deal sleeping is on the way your body functions. And the way your body functions has everything to do with pain or not having pain. Anyway. It made me think of, uh, you know, if we were going to do another raise of hands thing, you know, why don't we know about sleep? How many people themselves or have heard someone brag about how little sleep they need to get by? All of us, right? right. My hand goes yeah, up. I'm, I'm, I'm I hear guilty. people go, oh, I only need four hours. Yeah. And it's so cool because we're like, yeah, you, you're wuss. Like, you eight-hour sleepers. Jeez, you're just wasting time. Oh, the 10-hour sleepers, like, they're the worst kind of people. Like, I've already done more by noon than you do all day. And it's this flex that we do, and we don't know that we're doing it to flex, but there's no other reason because no one can say they feel great after a four-hour night of sleep. Like, you just can't. I have people I personally know coming to mind who have said that. One of them referenced the fact that if they sleep longer than four or five hours, 
it puts them into a state of struggling to wake up. So they don't want to feel that mm -hmm. struggle to wake up. So they'd rather sleep less and wake up easier. Have you seen Talladega Nights? <laughs> Probably not. That's an old film now, and so I might have. <laughs> I'm really bad at retaining so, movies. So <laughs> Ricky Bobby says, either you're first or you're last. That's what his dad taught him. And that's the thing is, is that if if you normally get up at six and you've already done more than, I don't know, geez, a quarter of people by eight o'clock and more than half of people by noon, that feels great. But if you get up at eight o'clock, you've already, you're not going to be the winner. Uh, you're behind. So there is a pressure to say, why even try? Because I've already missed out on winning the, the alpha game of getting up and getting crap done. We have a lot of behaviors that we don't, we just say we don't know why they happen. It always seems weird. Like, I don't know why I keep doing this. Just try to sell it. Sell it to someone else. Just, just find a friend and be like, hey, I want to sell you the idea That's of like idea. punishing your body to get up first in the morning. And it's so that you know that you're better than everyone else so that you can feel good about yourself. You can feel accomplished at the end of the day. Convince somebody it's a good idea. Yeah. And then go back and forth and have them convince you of something <laughs> they don't know why they're doing. You know, I say often that if I don't get an average of eight hours of sleep, I just end up with headaches that take over. Mm -hmm. And so I personally have found I don't really have a choice. I couldn't do less than eight hours on a regular basis. I wouldn't be human then. I wouldn't be able to function. I wouldn't be able to hold a job because the headaches just would be unending. The Why We Sleep book, he goes through a lot of scientific papers and research, and he's done a lot of it himself. And he says the consequences of, I think it's like eight days of only seven hours of sleep is the equivalent of being a 0.8 drunk. That's mm. crazy. People that haven't seen seven hours in like years. So they're a like 0.8 drunk all the time. Huh. It's kind of terrifying. So you add alcohol to that and then they're way... Yeah. And, and people are drinking alcohol to go, oh, this will help me get to sleep. What you said a few minutes ago points to, yeah, you don't even understand sleep if you're drinking alcohol. And, and I'm one of them. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what I heard is, oh my God, I don't even understand sleep. If I'm drinking a glass of wine at 2 a.m. because I can't sleep yeah. in the hopes that it will help me sleep. Yeah. You know, I say that because I did that less than a week ago. I was wide awake at 2 a.m. And I'm like, I could lay here or I could go get a glass of wine and hope that it helps. <laughs> and it will sedate you, but you won't get the sleep. And then you'll be more stressed the next day. There's a lot of factors going on on why we can't sleep. One is that we have this sort of self-atoning thing where if we don't feel like we've done enough to deserve to be tired, we won't let ourselves go to sleep. I'm all about mental rewards Yeah. with myself. If I do this, then I can do this. And sometimes I'll put off something really fun as a way to accomplish things I'm not that keen about doing. Like, let's say laundry. If I get all my laundry put away, then I could blah, blah. And I accept that as like a law for myself. You can't do that thing because your laundry's not done. That's the thing is, is it, it works to couple things, but not to make them absolutes. There was a famous person that, man, I don't want to say names. He said, it's easier to make a decision once than have to keep deliberating it over and over again. So just decide all these important things and just commit to it. And it sounded great. People loved it. Like, wow, I get so much done. 
But the thing is you have to stop and reevaluate yourself and like, is this still my best life? Is this still what I want to be doing right now? What is the cost benefit of me continuing forward? And we should know that it's very difficult to calculate what could have happened had we have made space for something we didn't know would have been there. Here's how to know if you're an alpha. If I say the word 100%, how does that make you feel? It's just like, yeah, oh, mm, yeah, you got it bad, okay? And the thing is, we don't realize what is it that's driving us to love that word. You know, maybe it's a parent's voice of don't leave a, ha a job half done or don't be a quitter. We get to prove our parents or the naysayers wrong. We'll be like, I'm not a quitter. I don't leave things halfway done. But what's the cost? A certain percentage of the time you, you move forward and then assert, then you have to stop and reset your direction so that your energy is not wasted because getting up and just starting immediately and doing a bunch of work that you're not actually going to use anyway is useless. And we have been taught to measure our success by how busy we are. We measure things in effort and time. And then we wonder why we don't have any energy or time is because we wanted to be able to have some quantitative thing. Just like we say, I only sleep eight hours. We also say, I worked 16 hours today. We have these measurements we want to tell people, and we don't know why we want to tell people them, but we're willing to sacrifice everything in life just for these dumb numbers. Or it, any measurement. Or any measurement, right? Well, I ran myself into the ground. That's yeah. even a measurement. Yeah, because that's 100%. You couldn't have done any more. You did, you did everything you could. That's 100%. Uh -huh. This is an obsession that we have. And the thing is, we have things, we have dreams that... You can't really measure. And we're scared to just actively pursue them because how are we supposed to explain what we've been doing all day if we were just thinking about one page we're writing in some book that like who knows if it's ever published? You know, someone asks you, they're like, wow, you're wasting your time. Why don't you, you know, get a job? Why don't you this? Why don't you that? Like there's all these negative things that people say that discourage us from what would actually produce passion in our life. So we find a good lifestyle flex by disregarding these barriers of pain. In fact, looking for the barriers of pain that we can just push through when really we could find passion, which is the result of our best feelings and thoughts combined into an action. And once you get a taste for that, you don't really care to flex anyone. I mean, it's still probably going to happen a certain amount because it's hard to get over it. But when you know the real thing, you don't care. So you're saying passion can... Or does, I'm not sure. Passion can take the place of the 100% and the measurements that you are kind of obsessed with. Yeah, exactly. Okay. It's kind of a hard analogy, but in Greek, there's two words for pain. One is translated typically as suffering, and one is translated as passion. You know, that's why some Bibles say that Christ suffered on the cross, and other ones say that he passioned on the cross. Mm-hmm. Well, which one the was it? passion of Christ. Okay. Yeah. And the thing is, is that like a passion is something where our heart's excitement and our mind's excitement about this thing is so great that time, energy, all that is irrelevant. It doesn't mean that there isn't some certain amount of pain. It just means that it's worth it. The thing is, is that we put ourselves into a lot of pain for things that are just not worth it. Experience is more to do with what we lean into. Because there's a lot of competing feelings that we have in our life, and we get to choose which feeling to lean into. You could lean into the frustration and like gear up to fight. You start posturing to fight. 
you don't even know you're doing it. All you know is that you're leaning into the frustration. And yes, it's a valid feeling. It's there. You could choose frustration, clearly. But you could choose whatever you want. There's always going to be tons of feelings that you could lean into, tons of thought processes you could lean into. And that's who you are is the person who chooses. People identify with their thoughts. They identify with their feelings. But our thoughts are just juxtaposing different things, logically comparing and contrasting things, and trying to identify risks. Our heart is seeing value, and it's trying to identify assets and ways that it could add to those assets. So it's going to keep doing those processes regardless of what you want. And the problem is, is that we stopped wanting to have authentic feelings and thoughts because they get us into trouble. Think about the things that people got the most mad at you for. You know, it was the look on your face when they said something, despite what you said or did. And we get terrified that someone's going to read our thoughts or our feelings and we're going to get permanently in trouble for it. And no matter what we do or say, we can't cover it up because they'll know what we really think or feel. It's just a juxtaposition of previous experience, all these things, just possibilities. It's totally random, but we don't let it play out. Your mind is like a slot machine. You keep pulling the lever. It comes up with weird stuff. Just juxtapose whatever, take three random objects, puts them together. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that that's what you deep down wanted, some Freudian sort of thing. No, it's literally going through a random list of items and seeing what it can find by juxtaposing them. Yet we're embarrassed of this process and we try to stop it. We want to cover it up whenever it's not convenient to us. And I've noticed that a lot of anxiety and especially sort of more kind of OCD response to things happens when we're terrified that someone's going to read our thoughts. And so we try to stifle them and especially try to stifle any facial expressions or body language that would convey that. Because if any of your thoughts could get you in big trouble, that's terrifying to be trying to calculate all these risks, risks, risks. And we just have to let it go. Be like, I'm not my thoughts. I'm the part of me that chooses what I can lean into. Yes, this thought came up that what you were saying reminded me of a logical fallacy of someone else, but that's fine. It's, you know, none of us are perfect, but I can't say I didn't hear it. <laughs> you know, if you want to address it together, great. I try to relate to that. Um, I don't think in terms of whether or not people can read my mind, but I do think in terms of beating myself up for wasting time thinking thoughts that are dumb or pointless. Mm -hmm. It's like you have more important things to be thinking about. Right. I don't worry that somebody could read my stupid thoughts, but I criticize myself for stupid thoughts, like a sad fear, a fear that you have that would generate sadness. I <laughs> will explore that thought and then I'll start to find myself feeling more and more sad as I allow that thought to unfold. And then I'm like, wait a minute, stop, stop. Why are you doing this? Like, this is really stupid. Why would you want to feel sad? You don't want to feel sad. But I can absolutely relate to criticizing myself for thoughts that are pointless. And that's precisely the problem is, is there's multiple things stopping us from thinking and feeling. And I think a major one for a lot of people is what other people think. But another one is just that it's a waste of time. It's interesting because we have these problems that we don't know, these questions we don't know how to answer, but yet we still think we know where we're going to find the answer. And that's kind of illogical because if you knew where to find it, why wouldn't you have already found it? 
there's the slot machine of the mind. And just keep pulling it. Just juxtapose multiple things and just see it doesn't cost a lot. Right? It's basically free. And trying to stifle it's just going to drain your energy. So you might as well just excitedly get into it and wait till you hit jackpot and be like, found it. Super random. First, I have these three ideas come together. And then I realized what the answer was. It was this. Whereas people get so much anxiety for either what other people are going to think of their thoughts or what they think of their own thoughts being a waste of time. When really it's just a game that you can just win, lean into it. Be like, yeah, let's see what you got. You know, the question, is it worth the investment saying like, well, should I go to my heart for the answer or should I go from my mind to the answer? And there's an easy formula to figure out what that is. And it's, can it be measured? If it can be measured, if it can and should be measured, let the mind do it. It's probably logical. If it can't or probably shouldn't be measured, it's a heart thing. Let the heart do it. I think a lot of anxiety happens when we are processing something that shouldn't be measured with the mind. And it's trying to just logically come up with some finite answer when it's not a finite thing. And a lot of maybe depression happens when we're processing something with our heart that really is just a logical thing and we should shift that over to Mm -hmm. that department. That's a really good exercise to remember. Yeah. I go, hang on a minute. Let's look at this. Should it be measured? Because although you've already said it, I just want to make sure that it sinks in with people that alpha is measured in time and effort. Yeah. The whole need to measure is definitely a mental thing. I didn't actually put that together. And yes, because why would you measure something in time or energy? Those seem like heart things, right? But you're measuring it, which means you'd think it was a mind thing. It's like, just decide, is it a heart thing or a mind thing? And if it's a heart thing, just do it. Why would you need to measure it? You're following your heart. Good. Do it. Uh Enjoy it. Another question we want to ask the listeners is, how relaxed are you right now? Come up with a number. If you're listening to this, come up with a number of percentage of how relaxed you are. Are you 100% relaxed? Are you 50% relaxed? Check in with your body and decide a number of how relaxed you are. Now I want you to explain to people why this question is even an important question. And, well, you can't explain the why until you explain your experience. Right. I was working at a clinic and taking blood pressures and the doctor I worked with didn't really care to ever look at the blood pressures, which was very alarming to me, (laughs) but most doctors didn't really care to look at the blood pressures I found. Not that I see the doctor a lot, but I swear every time I go to a doctor for anything, I had a lot of thumb issues. Every time I went to the thumb doctor, a girl sat me in the chair and took my blood pressure. Right. And she'd weigh me too. And I'm like, my weight and my blood pressure has something to do with my thumb on this visit as well. Of course. It's <laughs> mandatory. I've always found that strange. I mean, I, I don't want to give some number and say I'm some expert on what doctors do, but... You're a doctor. It was very... I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I do have... I, I've worked with at least probably close to 100 doctors and very few even looked at the blood pressure and it's mandatory and it's really weird the doctor I worked with when I did this research, anytime it was high, I'd let him know. I'm like, hey, it's like really high. And he's like, oh, it's just white coat syndrome. Okay, well, why do they have white coat syndrome? Which is they're seeing doctors wearing white coats. And that makes their blood pressure go up. 
And so I'm thinking out of all the places, you know, you're just getting a checkup. Like, like I could understand if you're like, oh, I'm finding out my results, whether I have cancer, whatever it is. Yeah. Okay. That could cause some stress, but like, you're literally going for a checkup. You like your doctor, you have a good relationship with him and you're, you still have white coat syndrome. There's no way that out of all the places in life, it only affects you in the doctor's office. Like, oh sure. It doesn't affect you while you're in traffic. Oh, it doesn't affect you while someone cuts in front of you at the grocery store. It has to. And so the fact that people would just look at it as like, mm, whatever, it's a weird phenomenon. 90% of all hypertension is essential hypertension. It's unexplained. A quarter of the whole world has essential hypertension and it's unexplained. They don't know why it happens. So then to have on top of essential hypertension, you have white coat syndrome, which is well, they're nervous to be at the, the doctor's I'm, I'm sorry, but just because you're near somebody who is in the medical field that you would feel antsy, that just sounds, I'm sorry, no. You could say depressing or overwhelming news syndrome? Sure. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Crisis syndrome? Okay. But that, like- That's doctors needing coat? an excuse is what I- is right. it, uh, Oh, it's because I'm in a white coat and I, I look and I sound really important. Yeah. And I'm- No. And it's, it's an intimidating to be in the presence of a God, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's just ridiculous. That's what white coat syndrome is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. It, it comes with a really inflated head. <laughs> that's going to come back to me, but whatever. I don't really care. <laughs> You know, it was like kind of irritating me. And so I kind of pressed the issue with the, with the doctor and he, he says, well, it's not accurate anyway, because you have to have their arm at the level of their heart and blah, blah, blah. All these things like, okay, well, if that's what we have to do, I'm just going to do it. So I'm in with the first patient that I decided to just do everything possible to get the most accurate blood pressure reading. It was, you know, an older lady in like her eighties. And I was like, can I hold your arm while I take your blood pressure? She's like, okay. And her granddaughter, her daughter uh, was there and holding her arm or, or trying to, but like, she's so stiff that I can literally like let go. Her arm doesn't move. She's a hundred percent holding her own weight. And so I tell her, I was like, just, just relax. I'll, I'll hold your arm. You don't have to hold it up. She says like, I'm not it's like, no, I mean like, just, just like let your arm like drop. It's totally relaxed. And you I'm, were like, wanting dead weight. Yeah. And she wasn't giving you dead weight. Right. And I'm cradling it. Like I have my hand like around her elbow and like her arm rested on like my forearm. So, I mean, I fully got her arm. Maybe she's like scared. I don't have it securely. I was like, man, I got this thing. And still she just can't relax. And you're like, relax. She goes on and on. I mean, like I didn't want to let go. No, like you're going to relax. And she throws her head back and she's like, I'm so relaxed. I'm going to sleep. And then she fake snores while holding her hands straight out in front of her. And so I look over at her daughter or granddaughter. So I got her attention and look at mom or grandma's arm. And she's like, what the heck? Mom, just relax. <laughs> Had you taken your arm away from her yeah. arm? My arm was two inches below her, not at all touching her. Oh, and she's insisting you're holding it. Yeah. And she's so relaxed. And so even when her daughter was like, relax, she says, I am. And yet she could just verify visually that, that I'm not touching her. So I'm worried, right? That's terrifying. The only thing I can think of is, is that she either had a stroke, currently have a stroke, past stroke, or like some kind of dementia or something. So I'm waiting to talk to the doctor. I want to see if we could do like a CT scan of her head or something. 
Because she legit thinks she's so relaxed her arm is in your hands. Yeah. And she said it multiple times. We're talking like four or five times. You are holding my arm completely. I didn't have a chance to talk to the doctor right then. And I had to room the next patient. So I go grab the next patient who was, you know, in their late 20s or early 30s. And almost had the same response. And I thought, okay, in the risk factor group of the older lady, yes, it's likely that she had a stroke, but there's no way that I'm getting two undiagnosed strokes in a row. It turned out to be 20% of people out of the next thousand people, I could let go of their arm and they would continue to swear to me that I was completely holding them. 20%. And this was an affluent area, like where all these people get stuff done, they're in touch with reality and well put together and they had no idea they weren't being touched. And it really made me think actually the first thought was if they think I'm touching them and I'm not, what do they experience when they're hugging someone? Do they feel anything? That was like kind of terrifying to me. I would do this process and I was like, maybe it's me. Maybe I'm like making them anxious. I kept trying all these things to make them feel more comfortable and I ended up kind of developing a technique to see what kind of tension they had. Turned out there was like three categories of tension. And this is something you can try on your friends and diagnose each other. <laughs> Overall, out of the thousand patients, I only had seven people fully relax. And I had 20% not, not capable at all, no matter what I did, of relaxing. And most people were at an average, I'd say, 70%. Of and, being able to relax? Yeah, maybe 70% relaxed. But... They're definitely not relaxed. That's that's definitely the, the takeaway, you know, whether it was actually 60 or 80. The thing is, is it's definitely not 100. And they would say that they were 100% relaxed. So, so everybody, for the most part, everybody believes they're doing what you're asking, yeah. relaxing. Yeah. Would you relax your arm? Okay, my arm's relaxed. Only seven out of a thousand actually could do it, right. could actually relax. The majority of people just believed they were relaxing. And 20% of people, you could drop your hand and they would still insist you were holding it because they were insisting they were relaxed it, it got when they weren't at all. Yeah, it got worse. I actually had a lady, she was really nice. And I mean, I kind of feel bad because it kind of seems almost like messing with her, but it's for science, you know? <laughs> so I was trying to hold her arm. She was definitely doing the work herself. And so I just wanted to see how long she could go before she would just start feeling the burning pain. I mean, just hold your hand out in front of you and see how long you can hold it out before it just starts to burn. Heavy. If yeah. you could last more than a minute, you're, you're pretty hardcore, right? So this lady, super nice. It was probably about two minutes that she was just straight holding her hand out in front of her. And then I asked her, I said, do you feel any arm pain? Is your arm tired or... Or anything, and she says, "No." It's like, "Are you are you sure?" Yeah. You have no pain at all in in your body. No. So I, I kept pushing it because, like, there's no way you're like that detached from your body. And she's, she's got like, to feel the burn. She's like, maybe in my left arm, and I'm like holding her right arm. <laughs> I could imagine the thought process because this wasn't a crazy woman. He's holding my arm. I feel pain. It can't be my right arm because it's not doing any work. Something doesn't deserve to feel pain if it hasn't been working. I don't know. She associated that pain all the way over to her other arm. 
that's how disconnected she was from her pain. So Uh is there that line that she crosses that she doesn't see the, Hey, you should probably stop. This is enough. No, she probably goes right past it. This is fascinating for me on another level because I, I spend so much time talking about being honest with yourself. Yeah. So to even hear this, I'm always fascinated when people just can't be honest with themselves. Not that I can, you know, hell, I'm always learning things. I say, if you're telling yourself a story, well, that right there points to your inability to be honest with yourself. And so reconsider anything when when it has a story. Her insistence has me go, ah, yep. We really struggle with honesty where we are concerned. It's something you have to experience yourself. You could be listening right now and be like, nah, there's no way. Like, I could relax my arm. Get f- three friends. That's it. That's all you need, three well, friends. I said to you that I could relax my arm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I ask you what percentage you were relaxed and what did you say? I couldn't imagine relaxing my arm more. I was like, I don't think I can relax any more than that. So I'm like, yeah, I'm 100% relaxed. <laughs> so I told her at first 10% relaxed because I didn't want to hurt her feelings. But I broke the news just today that it was actually only like probably about 5%. <laughs> but I'm one to talk. I can't 100% relax. So I, I don't want to like ruin my credibility on what the solution is. I still believe it. It's just very hard. It's very hard to stop doing what's working for us. Or that... We're familiar with, because I don't know if you remember when you did that, that day I said, well, it's interesting that you would say 10% and that I would say 100% because I've seen chiropractors my whole life. And you know that maneuver chiropractors do where you lay on your back, they take the weight of your head and they just kind of wiggle it. And then eventually they go rink and they just twist it, right? And your neck goes crack, 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 crack. Well, chiropractors have always while holding my head, said, okay, relax. Yeah. And I have to consciously go, what can I do more right now to relax my head? And there's never anything I can actually do. It's not a decision for me because I can't allow my head to be dead weight in somebody else's hands. And I lay there going, I feel relaxed. I think I'm relaxed. Surely I'm relaxed. And so I did that exact same thing with you. 100%. Yeah, this is as relaxed as I can go, so it must be 100%. It's not my head this time, it's my arm. This proves I can't relax. Right. And that made me think something you want to try. I mean, there's a couple ways to go about it. You could get a couple friends and everyone test each other, grab each other's arm. Another way you could do it is go to a masseuse. I mean, you're laying on a table. There's like, it's a really calming environment. See if you can 100% relax and just ask the masseuse, say, I want you to tell me, from your most stiff patient to your least stiff patient, like where I am. Because <laughs> they won't lie to you. They're Give like, me oh. a measure. How relaxed yeah. do I seem? And that's you at your best. There's no way. Where else could you be more relaxed if you can't be relaxed while you're getting massaged? What do we do with that information? You know, when you found out you couldn't relax, what did you? <laughs> I did nothing. I did nothing with that information. Because no one offers any solutions. So I think the first step is I found two qualitative and kind of quantitative ways of measuring stress, which I hope will be a mechanism where more research can be done using this metric system so that we can actually see the response. Even though we already know it's a problem, we should fix it. I think seeing exactly how bad it is will help. 
And if you get a couple friends, one isn't really good enough because you need a kind of a baseline of one person's going to be more stiff than the other person. So if you get at least two, then you're like, oh, okay, yeah, you're definitely the stiffer one because otherwise you might not notice. Yeah. And for me, I, I realized if I, especially if I grabbed their elbow and I would kind of move my hand away from them and back and forth and up and down in like these directions that there were certain directions that were more stiff. The first group I identified as a very specific stress source was the too nice group or the too helpful group. And no matter what I said, they would help me. And some of them were so intuitive. It freaked me out because I'm trying to move their arm in all these weird ways so that I can feel resistance. So that I know that they're holding their own weight and they were like reading my mind and moving it to where it never had any weight to it. So I'm like holding this arm, moving in all these like pretty fast directions. And they're reading my movements and following me perfectly so that I never feel any weight <laughs> and there's no resistance. You were actually one of those. You, you were up there on the, on the intuitive scale. <laughs> and it was, well, funny, but kind of hard that every time I tried to point it out to someone like, you're too nice. They would smile really big and like, thank you. Like, no, T-O-O, -O, nice. Like, this is too much. You need to stop. This is tearing your body apart. And they're still glowing. They're just like, man, a doctor just diagnosed me as too nice. He has like some actual measurement of niceness and I I'm nice. <laughs> and so you know that the diagnosis was true when they're like, yeah. So that leads me to the second group, which I relabeled to too self-sufficient. With that group, they would only allow me to move their arm in increments. Like it was like, okay, there was like a certain safe distance. Okay, you want me to go that direction? Okay, fine. But then they would stop and then... I mean, it was so distinct and so different than the other one where the two nice people, anywhere I wanted to go, the most ridiculous things, I would try to make it absurd and they wouldn't respond to absurdity. Huh. The third group is the too busy group. I don't know if I have exact label I want to put yet there, but the too nice and the too busy group, they would just be looking forward like as if I didn't exist. But the too self-sufficient group immediately would look over at me and say, what do you want me to do? Why is this not working? Why is this different than what I'm used to? They would have questions and it's like, let's just make a solution to this. And it was very interesting to see how many things were connected. And with that group, I couldn't ask them like, are you, you're too self-sufficient. Wait for them to smile. It's like, no, I don't need your praise. Like I already know I'm sufficient at things. But if I said, how much do you resonate with, if you want something done right, do it yourself man, they would smile big, like, amen to that. That is my life motto. Like, I, I know. That's, <laughs> that's why I brought it up. So actually going back to the two nice group, I had several times where I said to someone, when you go to a party, do you head straight to the kitchen and ask how you can help? And I had several people just break down crying. Yes. And I don't know how to stop it. Even if there's someone, you know, you want to talk to, they're like, I can't, I see them. I want to talk to them. I can't, I have to go to the kitchen. It's because they're too nice. That's where it becomes too nice, right? I told them, okay, here's the thing. Next party, you see someone you want to talk to, just talk to them. Then you can go to the kitchen. It's fine. You can be helpful, but you're not allowed in the kitchen until you've talked to one person you want to talk to. Because if you can't find one person you want to talk to at that party, why the heck are you at that party? You just really need a kitchen to work in? <laughs> no, you're there because there's someone there you want to talk to. Talk to them. And guess what? If that takes the whole party good 
you didn't sign a contract saying you were going to work the kitchen. You don't owe anyone anything. And that's a hard thing. We want to owe people things. Do you care if I just throw in Natalie input? Yeah, go for it. Going to the kitchen is concerned. And you said that I'm too nice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm one of these people that I have a debate. Do I go to the kitchen? Because they'll probably think I'm in the way. How do I not go to the kitchen? Because I want to be helpful. And so I go to a party. I see people I want to talk to and I can't concentrate on the conversation because it's like, what's going on in the kitchen? Could I be needed and not annoying? It could be one or the other. Maybe I'm needed. Maybe I'm annoying. Maybe I'm needed. And I could be useful. I could be helping somebody. Having a party is stressful. I could alleviate some of the stress, you know, whereas let's do the reverse. It's my party, my house. Somebody comes into the kitchen and wants to help. And it's like, no, you are a guest. You so can't be helping me. Like you have to be socializing. The kitchen is where I have to be because it's my party. You have to be having fun. So my niceness in that example is like a whole nother problem on wanting everyone to be comfortable. If Natalie goes into the kitchen and gets in the way, that's not comfort. That's annoying. Get out of the kitchen. There's too many people in here, Natalie. You just made it too many. So I don't want to be that person. But at the same time, how do I be a good guest and not be helpful? I think someone, at least for science, if not for anything else, should try this. Have a party and have everyone, when they get there, just sit down in a circle and go around and check everyone's arm. Then all the two nice people give them wristbands and forbid them to go in the kitchen. (laughs) Or before you forbid them, watch them go into the kitchen. (laughs) Clock that. And then go, I knew this would happen. All of you, out. Yeah. You <laughs> Look at your bracelets. Are too nice. Stop. Look at your bracelets. Out of the kitchen. <laughs> it would be such a good intervention. It's kind of hard to get called out in public. So, I mean, it'd have to be a tight group of people. But, I mean, if you have... My work party. We could yeah, do this. Three or four people. <laughs> and I think it'd be great because, you know, you'd think, oh, well, they'd hide it. No. I found that they can't. They literally can't. You could retest them. You could tell them exactly what a too nice person does, they'll still do it. That shows that it's so built into our reflexes that we can't stop, which means that it happens before we even know we're doing it. That's not good because like our life should be intentional. It's your life. It's not your reflexes life because your reflexes belong to biology and to any trauma that's ever happened to you. And those are two places I don't want to give myself to. I want to be my own self And if I'm going to give it to something, it's going to be my best thoughts and my best feelings combined. And let's look at when these people go to a party, they're going not to have a bad time. Right. They're going to have a good time. So if, let's talk about the kitchen people. If the kitchen people are spending their time worried or needing to to be helpful and, and not having a good time, what are we doing here? Yeah. Yeah. And, and yet we keep doing it. And, uh, it shows the way the stress hormone cortisol works is all of your cells have multiple receptors for that hormone. It's what amplifies both your fight or flight and your rest and digest systems. There are receptors everywhere in your body for it. In fact, your DNA has proteins that help replicate it and express things from it. One of the only hormone or chemical signal modulators of that is cortisol. And it's a big deal. That sounds as though you're saying cortisol is the ultimate middleman. 
it can influence this, it can influence that, it can it has more power on more systems in the body than anything else. Is that what you're saying? Right. And it's supposed to follow peaks at the night so that it keeps your blood sugar high and then goes down during the day. And then it's at its lowest when you're falling asleep so that you can fall asleep. That also means since it's a stress hormone, when you wake up in the morning, you're, you have high cortisol, which means you're going to feel stressed. I'm not saying people don't exist that don't just like wake up in the morning and feel great. But if you feel like you just got hit by a truck every morning when you wake up, it might not be anything more than just the normal physiology of that you have a high stress hormone from your night's sleep. Cortisol. Cortisol. Yeah. Okay. So this is another thing back to acetylcholine. That's something that we should have known about by now. And although everybody has heard the word cortisol, it sounds like it's the king of all controllers in the body. Does everybody know just how big a deal cortisol is? I, I can't say I did. I just yeah. knew the word. I knew it was in there. I knew that it was a factor. But feeling like I got hit by a train in the morning is something I've experienced throughout my life, sometimes worse than others. I would always call it a train. <laughs> it's not a train. It's cortisol. We shouldn't think that's something that's our fault. We shouldn't think there's something wrong with me. I'm broken. It's probably because I know I'm not worthy of love. Or Our mind can go a lot of places. What you should do in that case is just say, it might just be cortisol. I'm going to get up, take a shower, do something that I want to do, and then just see if it's still there. That's solid advice. Yeah. And if it's still there, that brings me actually to the second part of what I ended up finding out through my research is that your actual blood pressure and your pulse were reflective of what the nature of the problem was, your current stressor. So... The arm tension, that was like the long-term source of stress, but your specific current stressor has to do with your blood pressure. So the top number of the blood pressure is the problem you'd like to forget about. The bottom part of the blood pressure is the problem that you could fix, but your hands are tied. And the pulse is the problem you're not really sure what to do with. And that ended up being very, very consistent to the point where I had two people so you built this measure when you were taking blood pressure. Sorry to interrupt right. your story. No, it's fine. It's good. I had two people. That's what we're going back to. Yeah. So you're saying you realized this measure correlated to these things, the problem that you're most stressed about, the problem you realize you can't do anything with, and then... The one you're not sure. The one you don't know. Okay. So I mean, you could label a lot of ways. You could say stress is the top number, frustration is the bottom number, and anxiety is the pulse. Huh. But I found that making it more specific on the problem you'd rather forget about the problem you could fix, but your hands are tied and the problem you're not sure what to do with that. As I would ask people what they were stressed about, that ended up being so consistent to the point where there's a phenomenon in, in medicine called isolated diastolic hypertension. You could look it up. There's a really tiny tidbit written about it just says it's a thing. Like with anything else that people don't know how to describe, they just usually chalk it up to genetics. Oh, it's genetic. In my theory, it would say that there was some way your hands are tied, but it wasn't at all stressing. You you didn't care to forget about it, and there wasn't any question about it. So I had this man who was very confident, and only the bottom was elevated. And I got so excited because I was like, I theorized that this would happen. That you would eventually have one of these people? Right, because it's like... Theoretically, you don't have to actually want to forget about something or not to know what to do with it. And so I asked him, I was like, are you stressed? And he said, no. And I was like, do you feel in any way that your hands are tied? 
And he said, my work wants me to be in two places at the same time. And I said, but you don't care, do you? And he says, no. I was like, wow. So then the next person, he had the same thing. And so I said, are you stressed? And he said, well, I just got uh, an email from a parent from one of my students. And I was like, but you don't care because you know, they're just dumb, right? <laughs> Probably shouldn't say that. He didn't want to agree with it. Because like, you aren't supposed to say yes to something right. like that. Well, actually, I guess it was, it was more drawn out. He's like, well, my students are great, you know? Well, so I said, are you stressed? He says, well, I'm a teacher. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and then I was like, but he's like, but it's not the students. They're great. I was like, it's the parents. He's like, not all the parents. I was like, just one. He's like, yeah, they just emailed me today. And I was like, but you're not confused about what to do about it, are you? And you don't need to try to forget about it. It's like, no. But yet it was interesting. So it didn't stress him out. It didn't cause him anxiety, but it still was able to mess with his blood pressure, which was fascinating to me. Huh. I had someone, oh man, this was, I don't want to say best one. A great story. A great story. A great um, example. So I meet this lady, young, I don't know. I think she was in her thirties, maybe super pleasant. When I seated her to take her blood pressure and bottom numbers, just super high. This was towards the beginning of developing my theory. So I asked her, I said, are you frustrated at all? She's like, no. You have any like angry feelings right now? She's like, no, no way that you feel like your hands are tied or someone's bullying you or something. I persisted because so far it had been like a hundred percent that it was very predictive of this. And so I was just committed. I, I knew I was gonna be annoying, but she was really nice. And so I, I didn't feel like she would... kept going. <laughs> She's like, well... I did just get divorced and lost my job, but I don't feel frustrated about it. And I just remember thinking, wow, because when she was saying that she wasn't frustrated, I did not get the feeling that she was lying. It wasn't like she was even glossing over it. She believed. She believed that she did not want to be frustrated and that it wouldn't help the situation. Wow. And she put on such a good aura, like a good feeling that it fooled me. And I feel like I don't get fooled very often. Here she's got, you know, one of the more intense burdens in life, and she's still making me feel good just with her presence. That's impressive. But at what cost? You have to process these things. And so if you're stressed and you don't know why, you could just take your blood pressure or you could just say, if you don't have a blood pressure machine or anything like that, you could just say, like, is there something I'd rather forget about? Is there something... I feel like my hands are tied, or is there something I'm not sure what to do with? Likely you should find one of those that fits pretty well and process that. You look like you have something. Oh, <laughs> I'm just sitting here finding it so amazing because as somebody who was unemployed as I divorced and how stressful that was, I wasn't necessarily needing to say something. I was sitting here going, how did she do that? Yeah. Because... That was like one of the worst times of my life right. is being unemployed and divorcing. So I was just analyzing that space because I've been in that space mm -hmm. of those two things coinciding. And it was incredibly upsetting and stressful, even though I was trying to problem solve it. I'm trying to imagine that lady must have been in a problem solving state. And yet she totally pulled the wool over your eyes. Yeah. If I hadn't have held her arm and seen how stiff she was. And if I hadn't seen her blood pressure, I really would have never guessed. That is, and she even made you feel good. Yeah. Out of the thousand patients, I would say she was one of the most pleasant 
patients I had. And she was carrying this huge burden. Because we have these burdens and they stack up. And if we don't process them, then they just get too heavy. When I started this research, I remember sitting there one time. I was like, well, I wonder what my blood pressure right now says about me. So I started taking it and the blood pressure machine will go 30 points higher than, than your regular blood pressure, just so it makes sure it got the right number. And so my blood pressure at this point was normal. It was 120. Uh, it was my pulse that was high. <laughs> I remember thinking as it was at 100 and 145 on the top number of the pressure, that's a lot of pressure. And then it dawned on me, wait, these patients have like 190. That must be very uncomfortable. The thing is, is that your body is dealing with that pressure 24 seven, or, or at least whenever you're stressed, it's going up to that level and your heart is dealing with that pressure. All your arteries are dealing with that pressure. The arteries in your brain are dealing with that pressure. It's no big deal. I need to drink more water. Okay. Yeah, that's probably true, but you probably were stressing about something and your blood pressure could have peaked to uh, 200. It could have been something astronomical and you didn't notice until your head started hurting. You know, pain usually is a warning signal and it's great when it can, you can get that before damage is caused, but it's not always the case because not everything has pain receptors. Your brain doesn't have direct pain receptors. You can do surgery on your brain without any anesthetics because there's no pain receptors hooked to it. Your heart also doesn't have pain receptors. That's why there aren't usually symptoms of heart attack. And if they are, they're like this vague left arm pain, but that's once it's gotten really bad. Your heart and your brain are the two most important organs, and they don't have pain receptors. And so our ability to push past pain, and there's consequences to our brain and our heart that are a lot bigger than we would think. So what's the answer? And it came in the way of the first patient that actually relaxed his arm. So I was about 350 patients into my research when this man, just blue collar working man, relaxes his arm. And I check it. I check it again. I keep swinging his arm around. And I'm like, David's relaxed. <laughs> is he fully relaxed? Like, this is, this is incredible. I, I'm sitting there playing with his arm for like probably a lot longer than I should have been. I was just like dumbfounded. I mean, three, almost 350 people in a row that could not relax. I mean, it was very rare to get someone in the 90s, the 90% relaxed. I mean, that was a small handful, maybe 10 people at that point. So he's relaxed. I was like, you're the most relaxed person ever. Or no, actually I said, you're the most Zen person ever. And he's like, what's that? You, you are Zen. <laughs> and he laughs. I was like, no, I'm serious. What's the secret to life? Like, why are you so Zen? And he says, I'm a list maker. And all of my, all of my research up to that point was saying, like, if someone is an alpha, they've got lists like crazy lists for everything, get stuff done. They're to do lists. They're Everything is just so written out and I'm just thinking, well, that blows all that theory out the window. <laughs> like, I guess I have to go back to the drawing board. So, so let me just make a really quick correlation. You're saying his ability to be so Zen means he's not an alpha. He's not an alpha mode. I, I think the word alpha could go in a lot of ways. He would step up, but alpha mode is when you step up more, like more intensely or more frequently than you need to for the situation. Okay. We'll, we'll get there. I didn't mean to yeah. interrupt. No, no, that, that's a because, great distinction. Because you have different, I don't know if you call them alpha states or different alpha levels. And didn't you say there's something like 21 of those? 
Yes. So I want to come back to this. Okay. Absolutely. I don't want to walk away from the Zen guy because yeah. he's pretty important. He, he is pretty important. I didn't necessarily have the answer at that point. I just knew that being very intense and on top of things was not a good thing. And so he said he made a list of all the things he can't control. And then he promised himself not to worry about those things. So he actually had a list so that when his reflexes wanted to start doing it, he immediately be like, no, that's on my list. Yeah. One of the things I feel is by writing, I can trust my notebook. So my brain doesn't have to keep repeating whatever it is, which is one of the reasons I make lists. Yeah. I love the ability to trust the paper is holding the information and I don't have to. And that's great, especially for falling asleep to just get it on paper, but like I'll worry about this later. The thing about the list, I actually found out there's a science to it. And the problem happened when there's things on our list that don't need to be. When I came to the word alpha, there's a research article in Nature Magazine where they took baboons, they measured their cortisol levels from their from their stool. And they had like three different troops that they followed around very consistently and measured all their cortisol levels. And the alpha male had 10 times the cortisol level as the lowest stress level baboon, which was the beta. So if you were at the top, the very top or near the bottom, they had both very high stress level, but that sweet spot was like the beta or like the person in third place. And it was even consistent once it wasn't a genetic thing because once there was a divide or a switch in power, all of a sudden the new alpha would get that same stress level. 10 times. 10 times, which is no small thing. It's not like, oh, it's a 10% increase. No, I mean, you when you're looking for a correlation, like, is there a correlation? Yes, 10 times. That's insane. Chemistry works differently at that level. And what was the difference? Well, the alpha got 26% more sex than the beta or attention from the females. But that alpha engaged in 17% more confrontational behavior than the beta. And so that extra 17% caused a 10 times increase. And the 20% increase in pleasure did not balance that out. And so the thing is, is that the goal is not to not make lists because it's very effective. The goal is when you make a list, one out of every five things you have to identify and mark as being the least important. Either take it off or this might go on the next list. A new list with a new yeah, definition. Later. <laughs> after I do this list and after I see if there's anything else needs to be done, or not needs to be done, if there's anything else I want to genuinely do, if I have nothing, yeah, I could. I might be able to do that thing. The things that are least meaningful on a list somehow usually make their way up to like our number one, like the ones that we get stuck on. And they stress us out more because I didn't even care about this anyway. And it suddenly got difficult, right? So like we're like 90% done with something low on our list of priorities. And then some block comes in and then we spend all of our energy. We go into this alpha mode. We push to our physiological max and it's still there. And so we got so stressed out, our energy just drains drastically. It's like short circuiting, like a battery, just and we don't have energy for what we really wanted to do. And then we're even more stressed, but yet we don't look at our list and be like, okay, I'm planning my day around out of the five things. This is the number one, most important to me. I'm planning my day around it. Whatever else wants to fit in with that is great. If it doesn't, if it even conflicts at all, it's off the list because 
that's your life. You're not a, a machine that does things, especially for other people. You're not a commodity in a store. You don't have to sell yourself. If you look at yourself, if you were an item in a store, what would you be? And what would you cost? We don't think about this, but there's no other reason for why we put such meaningless things so high up in our priorities. Mm-hmm. And it's because we've commoditized ourselves, because we were taught to commoditize ourselves. I came to the conclusion I didn't think people wanted me around if I wasn't making them laugh. I realized with a, a good friend of mine in medical school that we both had the same problem and that we were addicted to it, that we wouldn't even like hear other people speaking because the whole time our minds were just racing to try and think of a joke. You had a this joke. belief you needed to be funny. Yeah. That they would just be like, just, we don't want you anymore because you're not entertaining us. We can't allow ourselves to be a commodity and like offer the service because then we're stuck to that. There's a logical fallacy, you know, post hoc, ergo hoc, that like something correlated is actually tied together. And so it's like, well, maybe people want me because I'm helpful. Maybe they invited me to this party because they know I'm going to help out in the kitchen. No. If they did, you should test it anyway and not go in the kitchen. It's, it's way less likely, though. It's way less likely. But we, we have these things like, oh, well, maybe they, they stopped talking to me because I stopped making a joke when really they knew I wasn't listening. I was just trying to make a joke. And they got and, sick of that. And they got sick of that. But I thought it was that I wasn't serving my function. Huh. So let's go back to cortisol mm-hmm. and the 10 times in the baboons. Are baboons smart enough that the stress of I need to remain alpha is creating cortisol itself? So I know that we can't ask baboons questions, and so I'm just curious if you have an opinion on that. Yes. So the only muscle that's connect, well, one of the only muscle, muscles that's tied to our brain and not to our spinal cord is our trapezius muscle. Well, you mean the muscles that are always hard in, yeah, on my body? Exactly. Okay. And so keep going. <laughs> I remember. Actually, that good friend that I was mentioning, I called him my guru my or my sensei for working out because we, during med school, we get stressed out. We go to the gym. And then we got into this shrug off competition for a while. It just kept escalating to absurdity. <laughs> and he said the traps are the, the muscle that produces the most testosterone. And I thought that was just some like, I don't know where he heard it. It seemed odd to me, but he was my sensei. Do muscles produce testosterone? I, I know that's an ignorant question, but... When you work it, it produces growth hormone. And with growth hormone and there's other things that testosterone's part of that cycle of building muscle. I mean, okay. even girls have testosterone levels. And My understanding is that testosterone is more important to a woman's body than estrogen is. Not that we have... I don't know if we have more of it, but it's more important to our body function than even estrogen. And, and we assume that estrogen is everything. Right. Know? It is very important. And it's hard to track down exactly what all it does. We're complicated creatures. It is part of this positive feedback of building muscle, at least. I made space for that idea that my friend said about the trapezius, but I just kind of saved it for later. But then as I was doing this, I was thinking when someone got stressed, the most common thing was is that their shoulders were high. I got to the point in the research where I didn't actually need to hold their arm in order to know how stressed they were. I could just look at how high their shoulders were or especially how far they would lean away from me so that they could actually have stability in their shoulder. Not like I need to get away from you. The shoulder near me would go up. Their need to control the, the movement 
required them to move? So, I mean, you could try this with a friend or, you know, in the mirror, just like lift up, take your right arm maybe and you like lift it up and just watch how your right shoulder will lift and your whole body tilts the other way because it has to balance out that weight. And so in anticipation of me holding their arm, they would already start to lean. Huh. I could have just set a camera up and just measured the lean and it would have gave me the same amount of data, huh. which is pretty incredible. So I realized halfway through the research, I was I know this is a thing. It's way too consistent. So I'm just interested in finding out how to help someone get over this. So I would grab their trapezius. <laughs> I mean, if I knew they were comfortable with it, which I felt like I got rapport with patients pretty quickly because I didn't have any like negative response to it. Most of the time I was like, oh, wow, thank you. You know, they would literally thank me. So I'd pinch their trapezius and just kind of massage it in until it forced them to relax while I was moving their arm. And then suddenly they'd relax. I'd retake their blood pressure and the top number would at least drop by 30 points. 30. 30. And the bottom would drop usually by 10. That was incredible that within one minute, just grabbing their shoulder, moving around, convincing them to relax or either that or talking about their stressor and just let them get off their chest. That's a completely different measure. Yeah. And some of them, I mean, it went down 60 or, or 70 points. I mean, it was quite drastic. And did you tend to do it when you could see, wow, this person has really high blood pressure. Let me just have a go. Is that when you would do it? That was one of the problems with the standardization was everyone has kind of a set diet and your weight, different things like would thyroid. <laughs> oh, thyroid. Yeah. So a lot of those things would kind of have your set point be lower. Like girls would typically, their normal blood pressure was like between 100 and 110. So if there was a girl that she was at like 115, I would see if she also had tension, it would drop back down. And it's like, oh, well, your normal is 104. That actually reminds me, I forgot. One of the measurements I found was that whatever I could drop it to once they were relaxed, there was these ranges and one was 30 points was an imperceptible amount of stress that if you honestly could say you were not stressed, 10 points on the bottom or 30 points on the top, um, that was like the your normal cup of stress that you could handle. Once it got over 30, you would know you were stressed. So you could take your blood pressure and say, oh, I'm one third stressed. Huh. I should do something before this gets to full. That was pretty consistent. Each person has a different set point. I had one patient that... I take her blood pressure and it's high. So I tell her she's stressed. I tell her she's too nice. She was actually an athlete, right? But had diabetes also like type two diabetes, which was interesting to me because it just wasn't the, the typical clinical picture, but she did a sport that was very intense. I won't say what it is. Also very nice person. I So I tell her that it's high because she's too nice. And she says, no. This was close to the end of the research. It's it's really consistent. Trust me. And she's like, no, there's no way it applies to everyone. I was like, okay, fine. If someone had like some kind of genetic kidney disease, it wouldn't apply to them. She's like, I have a genetic kidney disease. I was like, okay, fine. It doesn't huh. apply to you. So I was like, nonetheless, I just want to see. I take her blood pressure after I like move her arm, get her to relax. And it drops 30 points. She's like, that's the lowest blood pressure I've ever seen in my life. 
being medication controlled her whole time, and she's never had that low of a blood pressure reading. And you did the pinching? Yeah. So, I mean, not like heart pinching. It's more of just like I, I let it kind of melt. Yeah. Because if I'm pushing, that was actually part of it was... I've had chiropractors do that. Yeah. Where there will be certain places that they'll just push until the muscle goes like hands in the air. Okay. And I think it's an awareness because if you don't know it's tensed, but then all of a sudden you have to be, you have to acknowledge the fact that it's tense because what are they pushing against? In that 20% of people that couldn't relax, I actually would take my left hand, you know, so I'm holding their right arm with my right arm. Then I would take my left arm and I would push down on their arm. I'd say, do you feel me pushing down? No. Really? So, I mean, it's one thing to hold your own arm. It's another one. I'd put a lot of pounds of pressure on their arm to the point where I'm leaning into it to push pressure down and they're not at all phased and they don't even acknowledge it. They're like, do you feel me pushing down? Like, no. Huh. It's like, this is 20 pounds of pressure. That's incredible. So for them, that lifestyle flex of like pushing through pain is so, so much a reflex that they don't acknowledge it. I have a question that is a dumb question because I think I know the answer to it, but we have the ability to, well, most of us don't have a blood pressure machine in our homes, but it's relatively easy to take blood pressure and get that measure. But we don't, as far as I'm aware, have the ability to measure cortisol. Right. Well, no, we do. We do. It's, I, I don't... Is it something that we could all have in our homes? So here's the thing. I don't know that the value would be objective. I think that what you find from your blood pressure and your arm tension is way more accurate than whatever the cortisol level would be because there could be a genetic component to it. And also you do have a normal flow of cortisol and there's too many factors. And I just realized it wasn't important because you could just guess it. The other thing was that there was acute stress response and then there was like more of like a long-term one. So when I got a patient that had low blood pressure, but a really tense arm, when I talked to them, it ended up being that, that they had some long-term stressor in their life. So their body, well, at least their blood pressure stopped reacting to cortisol. Each of your cells, type 2 diabetes is a good example. When there's lots of sugar floating around your, your blood, then there's lots of insulin that has to respond to that. The cells in response to insulin open up to bring in this sugar. But when the cells are already full of sugar, they say, like, we don't want to open our door. Well, the only way for them to not open up their door is to get rid of, you know, the keyhole. So they absorb those receptors and they decrease. So you become insulin resistant. And so it takes more insulin to have the same response of opening up the cells. Similarly, because each cell is very different and there's different even types of cortisol receptors, each person might have a different resistance to cortisol. Like for me, maybe it's my muscles are affected and my hair is affected, my short-term memory. I think the short-term memory is consistent for everyone. That's usually the first one to go. And the sleep is pretty consistent for everyone. But I think which other feature you find, whether your immune system tanks, right? Suddenly you have an infection. So each person would have a different response. And the key is to see those when they happen and just stop it. Just reevaluate, just slow down. Be like, okay, I need to reassess my priorities. Since the Zen guy, 
I realized that there was a second list you could make. You could have, these are the things that I can't control. I literally can't control. And then a second list, these are the things I probably shouldn't try to control. And whenever you find yourself tense, what I found the, the fastest one is the shoulders coming up. So I just started like, if I felt at all tense, I would try to relax my arms, even kind of palms forward, just like kind of shake it out so that my shoulders were, I don't want to say pulled back because that's in like more tense, but rolled back, like allowed to be rolled back and just standing straight up to where my whole, my head was right over my spine so that I'm not flexing any muscles. And I'd stand there and just try to get to a state where it was the least amount of overall muscle tension I could. And I would try to identify what was setting me in this defensive mode. And it usually was something about my identity that was being attacked. It's like, how would this make me look? Like this situation is going to make me look bad. Oh, I posture to fight. It's like, no, 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 I don't care. <laughs> I really don't care. And so you, know, you, you debunk these things. If the thing is already on your list, okay, now I know more specifically what this thing on my list that I shouldn't or can't control. And if it's not on your list, add it to the list because we posture to fight all day, maybe, and we don't even know we're doing it. Hmm. Meanwhile, then we don't sleep that night and we have a terrible day the next day. So if you catch yourself within five minutes of posturing to fight and you're like, whoa, wait, and then you discover something new that wasn't on your list of things you shouldn't try to control, then you can do something about it. After that, that Zen guy, I mean, he, I guess he's one of my gurus now because he doesn't know it. That was all he did was exist. And used a few sentences that gave you ideas. Yeah. And all my life, almost all my life, I've had really bad insomnia. Like we're talking two hours to be able to fall asleep. And also I've had lower back pain, like ever since I was eight, I actually got ran over by a minivan. Ooh. <laughs> but so I thought, oh, that's why I have back pain is because of that accident. Like, obviously my bones were in that growing stage. So I didn't really think much of the Zen guy, but I adopted that. And I would just like check myself several times an hour. Just like, okay, can I relax? Wow. My shoulders dropped two inches. Obviously I was tense. And so I started making this list of things I can't control or shouldn't try. Then one night I was laying there and I felt myself falling into sleep. Like I'd lay down, it would have been less than five minutes. And suddenly I felt my consciousness starting to just kind of slowly vanish in a very relaxing way. Is this what falling asleep feels like? Like I'm falling asleep. You're like, I understand the falling part. Yeah, I never, I never experienced that. And it was like, pulling me into, I don't even know. Like, it was like so weird. And I'm thinking this doesn't normally happen. Why is this happening? Well, does my back hurt? And I was like, my back doesn't hurt. Oh, that's why I'm falling asleep. So my back doesn't hurt. I was like, but wait, since when doesn't my back hurt? And I didn't realize that I, I, I was fully sleeping. I had gotten to a, a state where my stress level was probably the lowest it had been in a long time. My back pain, at least 90% went away. Whoa. And my insomnia, at least 90% went away. And the difference is you made new lists. Yeah. And it wasn't with even... new objectives of what would go on them. Right. It wasn't that there wasn't a lack of stress. I mean, here I am, you know, trying to get into residency, having all these obstacles. And it was, I mean, one of the most uncertain and stressful times of my life. And I'm working a job making nothing. Just graduated medical school and I'm making less than minimum wage. And all this debt stacked up. So it was like all these pressures, you know, just got out of a relationship. And yet there I was 
at the lowest stress I'd, I'd been in that I can remember in my whole life. Hmm. And I, I think that shows something about it. So I had a friend later, you know, test me. Apparently I kind of lost it. I was, I was doing good for a little while, sleeping great, back pain gone. Then it's just something hard to stay on top of that because the daily stressor just adds up. I tested his arm and he was actually one of the, one of the few people to actually relax. And then he tested me and he didn't know what he was doing because like I was the only person he had tested on, but I could feel the tension in my arm and I could feel that I couldn't let it go. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know what percentage I'd be, whether I'd be a 90 or 50 or 70, but it definitely wasn't, I wasn't hundred percent relaxed. That's for sure. But it's possible. So something we need to address far better than we have thus far is the correlation between pain and cortisol or pain and anything. Okay. Yeah. And that is very important because what does cortisol do? Well, cortisol tells your body you're going to die if you don't make sugar for the fight. <laughs> you're, you're either running for your life or fighting for your life and you need that sugar, which is energy. And so it turns off. There's lots of systems in your body. Your immune system has receptor when cortisol is there. It just turns off. Because I'm not important right now. Right. Cortisol says so. Yeah. The fact that cortisol is in charge suddenly means I don't have to do my job shutting down. I think it's somewhere 150 billion white blood cells a day that you make every day. Think about a factory that makes that many things, right? It's very energy intensive. And so to be able to shut that system off saves you so much energy and your body needs sugar. It's the immediate fuel source. You have four potential fuel sources. One, the most easily used is sugar. That's exactly the way your body wants to burn it. I guess want is an interesting word, but it's the easiest way to burn it. We'll just say that. The second one is glycogen, which is a whole bunch of sugar molecules stuck together that can be mobilized really quickly and turned into sugar. And then there's fat, which is pretty difficult to burn because your blood is polar. It's made out of water. Oil is not. So it doesn't want to mix. And so to transport it is kind of dangerous for your body because that difference between what's polar and what's not is very important. When you work out, it doesn't even start burning fat at all till 30 minutes into your workout when it's like, okay, it looks like we're probably going to do this for a while. It's worth it to now bring in fat. What do you do? Well, you mobilize all this fat and then you stop working out after 30 minutes. And so it's all mobilized and it has to do all the work of putting it back, which it doesn't really want to do because it's the dangerous road to mobilize it and the dangerous road to put it back. So to ask the question that a lot of people are going to right now have, which is almost distracting from the subject, how many minutes should I work out? <laughs> if if I thought 30 was good and you're saying my body only just went, okay, now I'm willing to incorporate using fat, how long should you work out? How many minutes past 30? Do you need another 30 to actually make a difference? So one thing I found, it, it'd be better to do it shorter terms, like less days for longer, I think. It's hard to have absolute data about exercise. It's such soft science. I'm not trying to downplay it, but there's a lot of conflicting things. This will explain two things at one time. Cortisol turns protein into sugar. 
So your body wants that, that currency of energy, so it doesn't care what protein it takes. Cortisol can turn off systems like your immune system, but it kind of turns off all the systems because it just indiscriminately eats protein and turns it to sugar. An article I just read recently says when you overtrain, which overstressing would have an equivalent amount of cortisol, your body breaks down 4% of muscle instead of the normal 1% a day. So that's four times the amount. And your body can't necessarily restore that very well. So you get someone that's overtraining and they're not getting stronger. And so you take a break and suddenly you're stronger. And that's why I was doing that. I mean, I was working out hard. I mean, I'd run a few miles and then just really work out, push myself. So I ended up getting pancreatitis and I didn't know what it was till I'd had it for a while and probably should have gone to the hospital. But anyway, <laughs> I lost a lot of weight and I was never hungry because your pancreas has a, like secretes a hormone that, that tells you you're hungry. I just literally wasn't. I had to force myself to eat for almost two years. And it was so hard. I'd think about all the things I wanted to eat. Nothing sounded appetizing. So I'd have to find something that I could choke down that wouldn't make me want to vomit. Huh. That was like a really weird thing. And I'm not saying go damage your pancreas because it's definitely not worth it. All so, the things. But the exercise literally damaged your pancreas. You, you created this problem. Is the exercise compounded with the stress of medical school? So my hair was, like I said, I had chunks of hair falling out. It's not hard to hold on to a hair follicle, right? Like, so the fact that your body can't even do that means that globally, your whole body is so messed up. There's so many things missing that it can't do basic functions. What are basic functions? You know, repairing things like repairing neurons, right? So you have a pain neuron firing. And it can't repair it. So it's actually firing because it's broken, because you're stressed, and your body won't allow it to be fixed because it turned off that system. So you have something like fibromyalgia. It's Their pain fibers are broken and can't restore themselves. And what makes it worse is no one understands them, so they're more stressed. So they feel even more alone. More full of cortisol. More full of cortisol. So less likely to repair those those neurons and their muscles breaking down. So they're feeling actual muscle pain everywhere where there's muscle, which is a lot of places. And and is that because of the protein? Yeah. So it's eating that protein and to make sugar for a fight that you're not going to have. So it'll then just turn it to fat. Which makes so much sense for how people end up not having muscle and end up really overweight. Yeah. So if you, wow. if, if someone came and told you, Hey, in one hour from now, you're gonna have to fight for your life. You're literally going to wrestle a bear. What could you do in the next hour to prepare yourself for that fight? Eat a bunch of carbs. It's literally the only thing you could do. And so we don't notice why we're craving carbs and it's correlated with our stress. Huh. Craving carbs is not, not a natural state of our body. Our body, it, it thickens up our blood to and especially fat thickens up our blood like a lot. We don't want that, but yet we crave it because we're in fight mode or flight mode. Uh -huh. And so that was one thing that I realized is every time I had the urge to snack, well, one, if it was just for like something carby, I'd be like, no, okay, I'm stressed. I need to try to say, look, what is it that's stressing me out? If I figured that out and I still wanted the snack, then I'd have a snack. But almost every time, if I acknowledged the stress, I suddenly didn't want the sugar. Huh. It was kind of interesting. You this was awareness after, to it. This was after my 
<laughs> my hunger came back. So I guess that's a good, oh, okay. a good thing. I got in a system of, I would go on like the sit down bike for maybe 15 minutes. Then I would do some like muscle training back to the bike, back to the muscle training. So I do three sets of each. You could swap it with running or whatever. But what I found was that wear out my legs with this cardio type thing. And then my arms were totally fresh to do some weightlifting. Then as soon as my arms retired, my legs then were, were refreshed again. And I liquidated that 30 pounds. Well, actually it must've been more. So I gained 10 pounds of muscle and lost 30 pounds of weight, just like within six weeks or two months, suddenly it was just gone. I was huh. in like really good shape and I felt great. And I think that that was the formula was, is that I found a way to extend it. So you think like three 15 minute cardios intermixed with about a 15 minute or 10 minute weightlifting. I don't know how much it would help to do like some jumping jacks before you head to the gym, but it might, it might tell your body, Hey, I think we're doing exercise. You get there and then like, and then it just starts burning it anyway. Uh-huh. The thing is, is if you're stressed and you're beating yourself up for being overweight or whatever, then your body can't burn fat. You're creating a situation to prevent what you want. Right. Because you, if you stress, you increase your desire for carbs, your craving for carbs, and you decrease your body's ability to process fat. So if fat has to be transported by proteins so that it can navigate through your blood, which is basically water, and you're eating proteins, if your sugar that's accessible to your body is in your blood, where's the protein most likely to be used in an emergency located? Also in your blood. So that your carrier proteins are like the first ones to go. Well, what does that do? Well, one, it'd make your body swell up with more water. The protein is what holds your blood in your blood vessels. It's kind of some weird science, but there's this pressure that the proteins pull in the water. And you, if you eat that, then you swell up if you eat that protein, right? So you don't want to go into this stress response and it's totally manageable to have a lifestyle where you're fueled by passion. Yeah. Food is just fuel for your passion. The reality is most people are fueled by stress. Yeah. Fueled by cortisol without knowing that's exactly what they're doing. They put themselves in a stressful situation. And if they're an alpha, they're like, this is why this is a good thing. Yeah. They're coming up with all these reasons why I'm capable. I'm this, I'm that, I'm the other. When the situation that they're actually physiologically in is a cortisol situation. And it's not sustainable. It gives you a kick. When we go into this alpha mode where we're pushing our body to its limits We're going at least 17% beyond what we should be. So when we push ourselves to that limit, it's like leaving the atmosphere or re-entering the atmosphere as a spaceship. It's really hard. It heats up your machine. We don't want to go in and out of alpha mode very often. Alpha mode means you're just eating random proteins all throughout your body. Ones that are used to transport fat, burn fat, make memories, whatever it is, you're eating all those proteins. It's like a car that's just been treated really badly. Barely working. Yeah. So it does, it's really hard to start. And so since we're in a world of alphas where everyone is in alpha mode, people have different alpha cycles. And for some people, it's at the end of the day, boom, they collapse. They're just out. They're not really getting good sleep. They're just sedated from being so exhausted. There's some people that crash on a weekly basis. Some day the week hits, Saturday or Sunday, when they finally have done everything for their workday and they're just, incapacitated. Other people, it's two, three. I don't know that anyone could go four weeks in alpha mode because that's just 
definitely not physiologically sustainable. Maybe an extra cup of coffee. It's like, no, I've already had four. I still feel terrible. And it's that you're finally paying the price of how badly you've treated your body this whole time. And really, it's only that you were doing 17% more than you should. You don't have to slow all the way down. Back off 17% if you can. You mentioned caffeine. And as a huge coffee lover, and as somebody who clearly has too much cortisol on a regular basis... Not that I'm going to change drinking coffee because coffee is one of my favorite things in the whole wide world, but what effect does caffeine have on cortisol or anything like caffeine having an effect on cortisol? Caffeine inhibits your body from recognizing adenosine. Adenosine is a molecule that's kind of like the battery molecule, and that battery molecule can be charged up with phosphates. So if it has three, that's the best energy currency of your body. That's what you use sugar is to make adenosine triphosphate. Once you chop off one of those phosphates, that gives you energy. You can actually chop off another one. It doesn't give you near as much as it does the first one. And then you can even chop off another one to where it's just adenosine. There's not three phosphates hooking on it. And that one you get almost no energy, but it is a certain amount of energy. And when you fall asleep, you have sleep pressure is a formula of melatonin, which is on a cycle of, you know, 24 hours or close to that and deals with like sunlight and other factors for adenosine. It's just saying your battery is drained. And so the more adenosine you have, the higher your sleep pressure is. What is sleep pressure? Sorry. So just like the ability to fall asleep. Okay. So when you go to like relax and fall asleep, you need adenosine and you need melatonin. And then your body's like, okay, let's do this. We're actually designed to to be able to take a nap. Like that's kind of important for our physiology, get stuff done and then take a, a short nap, you know, 45 minutes, maybe two hours. In the book, Why We Sleep, he talks about countries like Greece who got rid of their siesta time and the increase of heart attacks just like skyrocketed real quick for people who don't know what siesta time is i do because i lived in romania and everything shuts down at one o'clock until like about 5 p.m it opens up again and so there are countries that revolved around the physical body needing a nap yeah it's good because then that means in order to take a nap you have to have higher acetylcholine, which means because adrenaline and acetylcholine are competing, if one, one will turn off the other. So whichever one's winning. So that means you were able to reduce your adrenaline, which makes you kind of jittery and, and, and whatnot to be able to sleep. And okay. yeah, I see where this is going. So caffeine essentially F's with your acetylcholine. Yeah. And, and of course you don't want that when you do need to be sleeping this makes sense. So it puts you in an, a permanent adrenaline state. Caffeine it's, does. Well, not, I mean, the, like a habit of drinking caffeine, right? So if you're working through your whole day and just working, 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 then you just pass out at night. You didn't ever stop that adrenaline, that fight or flight part of you. You didn't, you didn't have to really turn it off. So maybe you just have NREM sleep and you don't actually have REM sleep. And you just keep doing it the next day. So that's how it's possible. But if you, if, in order to take a siesta, that would really require shutting down that adrenaline system. And it would be a good way to kind of reset yourself. I found 
with my shoulder thing where I take a breath and I sometimes I even like grab, grab my sternum and I imagine like there's a string pulling it up and I take a breath in you know, your shoulders just naturally roll back when you do that. And then I just like relax, kind of shake my arms and, and have that be my reset. I found I had to do that like multiple times an hour, which didn't take very long. I mean, I call it like a five second yoga thing. Having at least a siesta would definitely be a good reset for the mm-hmm. body and pretty necessary, but we don't do it because we shame ourselves. Oh, I'm, I'm too strong. I don't need that. Other people might need that. I don't need that. I'm lazy if I climb into bed at 1 p.m. When really, I mean, if you actually measured it out, you could be a lot more effective and efficient. That's what I say about friends who stay up all night trying to accomplish something and they're so tired that they can't even write a sentence and yet they have to write this report. And it's like, you're investing hours into one paragraph. Whereas if you had just slept, you could write so many paragraphs. Guilty. So so you, you brought us back to a point that you brought up a little bit earlier that we haven't touched on. And that's like, what are the different types of alphas? And, you know, in my book, Conflict and Connection, which is on Amazon right now, it identifies 21 different interpersonal tools. You can be an alpha in any one of those 21. So they're kind of maybe a classical alpha, someone who's just always getting stuff done, makes lists, you know, is a very effective leader. But you could be an alpha in a very different way that very few people would think you're an alpha, but you're definitely going into alpha mode all the time. So for me, the interpersonal tool is perseverance and the associated weapon is relentlessness. And apparently I just don't see that line and I'm just. You persevere, 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 and you're relentless about it. So it turns into sort of like a manic alpha mode. Gotcha. You know, you could have leadership as a tool. Manipulation is the associated weapon. So you could have a leadership alpha mode and then you would be manipulating more often. As I was writing the book, the, the Conflict and Connection, or actually doing the research for it, I made a survey and had all my friends on social media rate my use of interpersonal skills and weapons, these theoretical ones I'd made. And 97% of over 100 people said that the weapon I was most likely to use was relentlessness. I remember thinking when I saw that, because like there's manipulation and exploitation, all these other things that are bad on this list, even though I made the list thinking they're just all the same. They're all equally bad. They're equally not the right answer uh-huh. in that given situation. But even despite that, I thought they all just said relentless because it's the least bad one. Then I thought, that sounds a lot like denial. Like, okay, I'm just going <laughs> to act as if relentlessness is a bad thing and just change. And I had a palpably different response from people. It's not like I went around telling people, hey, just so you know, I'm going to be less relentless. No, like I just was. And I'm still definitely relentless. Anyone can say that. But the response to that change was incredible. And I realized it is a problem. It got crazier. So with my theory, as my theory developed, I ended up putting words associated with each one of the different tools or weapons. And I made a text analysis, which is on my website, the, the conflictandconnection.com website. And I put in hundreds of pages that I wrote. Hundreds. I mean, I like writing. And clicked analyze. Perseverance versus relentlessness never came up. All the words associated that I wrote myself never came up. I put a lot of other people's writing in there. Came up like every time. There was some line that I just didn't see. 
And I had two ways of verifying that one, my friends telling me it's a problem. And then also my own text analysis telling me it's a problem. What kind of alpha am I? <laughs> um, you that know, laugh in that face makes me go, I can't tell you that. That would be mean. So I realized in the list of things I shouldn't control, I firmly believe there's no control in love. And I have made several definitions for love. And one is that it's creating a space big enough for all of someone, even the parts of them that they don't like. And I found that I don't want to jump to any conclusions about what could be possibly bad, air quotes, about someone like at all, actually. I just don't need to because I'm not going to try and control them anyway. The only thing that can change actual behavior is love. I don't think shame can do it. Shame can make someone act as if they've changed, but they won't actually change. They'll just maybe create more of a repression. They'll be vindictive. And so it just doesn't, it's not really worth my while. Also, I found that in the moment when I'm just living in the moment, if someone has something that's consistently a part of their life, it comes out in everything they do. There's probably not many seconds of the day. Someone wouldn't be like, Mike, you look a little manic, <laughs> right? Because it's a problem. Oh, it's two o'clock. You know, I have some friends like, why are you online? You know, my friends live you know, on the other side of the world. Uh, why aren't you sleeping? I'm writing. <laughs> okay. Stop, stop being manic and go to bed. <laughs> I developed a survey that pretty accurately can predict with just two questions, what that would be. It's currently getting updated and I have a self-assessment that I'm making, which would even more accurately help with that. I need to do that. And I'm really excited about it because it shows us our blind spots, just the questions. And the other surveys, you know, in the big five or MBTI, you're reading the questions, you're waiting to see what that has to do with your personality because you have no idea. And then you get this response and you're like, oh, cool. I'm extroverted. And neurotic or something. So with my survey, they're all questions that should provoke thoughts and feelings. And you don't actually need a printout at the end of it. You'll know the questions you read. You're like, yeah. Like one question is how happy are you for the success of other people? Just think about it. You're like, wow. Yeah. You know, what? I should do that. Why, why don't I do that? And then just embrace it. Like, okay, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to be happy for people. And you could do an exercise and practice it. Okay, next time someone tells me something they're excited about, I'm going to get excited with them just to try it mm -hmm. and see what changes. With the big five personality, it says something about your personality. It says you don't need to ever retake it. But like for me, with a self-assessment, you should take it, find two or three things out of their 63 questions, three for each of the 21 tools. Take it, find two that you want to work on, have some experience with that, come back to it again, see what the next two would be. Just take it in chunks at a time. Don't go all alpha and be like, all right, I'm going to perfect this test. Next time I take this, it's going to be perfect. No, like don't do that. Because you said to me once that a way to chill out the alpha, and those are my words, not yours, <laughs> a way to chill out the alpha is to concentrate on passion. And, and not that it's bad to be an alpha. A question that I wanted to remember to ask you, and I only just now did remember, is me and probably many more people have the word alpha associated with competition and proving strength. Are we assuming wrong? 
that the word alpha is related to competition and proving strength. And the reason I personally ask that is because, A, I hate competition and I have no desire to prove I'm strong, maybe to myself, but not to others. Because, God, I'm not a bodybuilder. Capable, yeah. I, I want to prove to myself I'm capable, but this life isn't a competition for me. I don't even care for sports because I have no desire to be competing. Let's compare ourselves. I don't like comparison. Mm. Like comparison, I see it as a, as a terrible dead end. So is being an alpha a bad thing ultimately? And if so, wow, I really need to concentrate on passion. Mm -hmm. So our heart wants meaning. It wants to do things that are meaningful. And its drive, you could say its neurotic drive would be to be selfless. Our minds are pursuing logic or truth. And it's like kind of psychotic, I guess, if you were to, depends on how you want to label it. Everyone uses words to describe things differently. So I have to have my own system just because I can't just cater to anyone who's ever used the word neurotic or psychotic or alpha or anything. So I try to define each one. Smart. Our mind wants to be capable. So our identity, if we're triggered, you know, we're tense, we're in fight mode. It probably has to do something with how we look as a selfless person or a capable person. The selfless one, you know, goes right along with someone who's too nice. So selfless would be not competitive, goes right in line with the type of tension in your arm. Would that mean then that you're like competing with other non-competitive people to be the least competitive so they could be the least selfless? It's a little intense way to look at it because it's like, oh, dang. It can, if you look too far into it, it can kind of ruin everything. But what I realized is that there's a certain amount, and you call it 17%. Maybe there's 17% of what we do that's just neurotic or psychotic, right? It's really hard to get rid of that. Anything we do could have ulterior motives, and that's, that's okay. I think that our actual intentions in life exist somewhere between 20 and 80%. They're never 100 and they're never zero. Similarly, our neurotic components are somewhere between 20 and 80%. So they're also never zero and never a hundred. And the important thing is to try and separate the two. So every action that we do, we could say, I'm going to identify what's worth repeating and I'm going to identify what's not. And I'm just going to be honest about it because I don't want to repeat it. Yes. I was a little bit happy that I got some vengeance on this person in an indirect way, or yes, I was happy. I got some attention that I wanted. But that's okay. It doesn't mean you have to like not do anything if it's not getting vengeance in some way or getting attention because everything gets attention. Everything can be, I guess, vengeance in some way. If someone is wrong, they're not going to want to know the truth, right? So I think we're way too hard on ourselves. We want to have pure motives. We want to do things 100%. But in that process, one, we create all these repressions and secret kind of desires that come out in, when we're just in our reflexes or when we're not like paying attention that are kind of messed up. Think about the most messed up things that have happened. Yeah. There's, you know, you could kill someone, but that's like, that's very rare. What's more common is scoffing at someone or looking down at them or talking down to them. And we do that. And it's such a subtle thing. Like, well, I'm not a murderer, <laughs> but yet that person can feel so like they, maybe they shared something really vulnerable and then you scoffed at them. And that can be kind of a big deal. So do we notice when we scoff? 
the looks we give people. Well, and even if scoffing is a very specific thing, just as you said, intonation, talking down to somebody and insisting that you're above them in any form. And it all has, has an influence. It's harder to Absolutely. stop those sorts of things. People don't think, wow, I was just talking down to that person. If someone tried to point it out to them, like, did you realize you were just talking down to that person? No. No, I treated them so respectfully. I said, please and thank you. And I gave them this big smile. Yeah, a super fake smile while you were talking down to them. <laughs> we're smart enough to fool ourselves, but not smart enough to realize that we're fooling ourselves. And not anyone else listening. Right. They're not fooled. Yeah. Somebody came to mind as a perfect example when you said that. We put up with it. Yeah. We say maybe me pretending like it's not a thing is easier because I just don't care. I don't care enough to help them. It's not worth my time to point out to them that they're so messed up. So they go along thinking like, oh, no one cares. The few people that like blow up and tell them like, oh, they're, they lost their temper. They're obviously like unstable. Yeah. They're having a bad day. Yeah. Oh, it's probably, yeah. And so there's all these ways we can deflect what's really going on. Life is complicated with my theory. There are 21 different ways to interact with the world or with other people. And I have a really good friend and, and we actually sat down and just like rated each other. Came to the conclusion that we were both proficient. I was proficient like 15, you know, six, 16 of the 21 tools. And that we both used about nine weapons too much. And there's very different, we're very different people. And so it actually didn't overlap very much, which was interesting. That's, that's a problem. Using nine weapons, nine separate different weapons too much is not ideal. And being in a situation where there's six, for me, you know, there's six tools that I'm not comfortable using. I'm probably going to use a tool out of its context, which makes it a weapon. And oh, interesting. I think I'm using a tool, but since uh -huh. it's out of context. You're telling yourself, but I'm using a tool. Yeah. It's the art of life to figure out what's the right tool for the right job and to use it. And we get so pressured to be immediately responsive in situations, to not think about it. The teacher asks a question. We immediately are supposed to raise our hands and have some answer to spit back to them. No, you got to like reframe the situation. In my theory, there's seven different aspects to life. And there's three, you know, like parts of you, your intellect, your willpower, and your intuition. And so that overlaps to make 21. So just trying to figure out which aspect of life, which emotion is the right one, got to think, reframe it seven different ways. We grow up being pressured to not take the time to reframe a situation multiple ways. So we just keep React. reframe it the same way. React. Yeah. You said something to me the other day that was really quite fascinating. I thought you were going to visit that a few minutes ago. So let's return to the 17%. If you can reduce your cortisol levels, wasn't it? By 17%, you can have a huge effect on your body operating better. And then what you said to me was 17% is a seventh. Yeah. And there are seven days in the week. And if you would just every seven days stop what you're doing all the other days, then you could, by looking at numbers, find that 17%. Right. Yeah. And so the 17 actually, the seventeen percent reduction reduces your, your cortisol by 10 times. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
all you have to do is back off 70%. Well, yeah, that's because the alpha in the monkeys, right. his cortisol was 10 times higher. Okay. Correct. Mm-hmm. And so having that maybe a one-seventh pullback from where you're at, from the level of intensity, is you're right, it's one-seventh. And it's kind of interesting. It comes up a lot of different places. And it's a good idea to figure out where we're actually headed. Why not reevaluate and make sure it's still the right direction we want to go, make maybe a small alteration. If you don't make a small alteration every once in a while, when you get closer to something, you don't know what you're getting close to. Because the closer you get, you should know what you're headed towards better. You might think, oh, I don't actually want that. I thought I wanted to be a professional motocross rider. The closer I got to that, I was like, no, these people are crazy. I got to like a a pro amateur level and I raced one national race at that level. And we're going to that first corner. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to let off till I'm in first place. Oh, well, apparently that's what everyone was thinking because no one let off. We all come into this corner. I was like, we're not hitting the brakes. We're not even sitting down. You guys are insane. And there we all were two wheels. You guys, as you're in the same posture on your bike. Right. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. It shows how much we, we project on other people and we don't, we can't see ourselves. It was like, you guys are insane. Even though I'm doing exactly what I'm you're I'm going to win. You're insane. Look at you standing. I turned the first corner. I'm just terrified. It was so scary. I could do it. I was somewhat capable of doing it. Came to maybe the fifth corner, sixth corner, and I just slid out. You're too tall for motocross. I, I, I that's very true. Actually. <laughs> So I, I slid out. My adrenaline kind of spiked. I had no energy. I pushed myself so far with that first 45 seconds, maybe, oh, wow. that my energy was at zero. Huh. We're capable of pushing our bodies to such great limits. If you're fighting for your life, you watch any of the Discovery, the Animal Planet videos about you know a lion attacking a zebra, really interesting dynamics. When they're running, they're just running as fast as they can. And their whole body's just racing so much that when they get eaten, they, they can't even really respond to it. The animal getting eaten, yeah. like can't fight back. They're doing Energy what gone. you did after 45 seconds, after the first two turns. I'm spent. Yeah. Got you. I mean, take your battery and, and short it and see how long it takes to drain that whole battery. Two seconds. <laughs> We're definitely short-circuiting our system when we push ourselves farther mm-hmm. than we should. I've never been one to meditate, and the reason for that is so much is going on upstairs all the time that I, I've i just went, you know, can't shut that off, so I can't meditate, so I'm not going to explore that world of meditation. But now you have me thinking about meditation totally differently just based on cortisol. And if I can find 17%, which is honestly a very small number, Let's look at it like this. The difference between $17 and $100. What can you get for $17? Not even a really good meal for two. (laughs) Not even really a really good meal for one. Uh, What can you get for $100? Pretty great meal. But anyway, so $17. I'm I'm saying to myself, if I could just chill out for 17%. Only eat a meal that's $83. (laughs) Only $83 instead of 100 Look, you saved it just like that. <laughs> I'm seeing suddenly, as, as we've been talking, the concept of meditation changing. Right. Because I don't have to 
figure out how to be that Zen dude. I don't have to fully, I could make a few new lists. Right. I could posture my shoulders and my hands. When you would say pull up on your chest, did you grab your skin? I like, can't, well, just a just little bit. I'm imagine. not like pinching it, but I just imagine like it's pulling it up. I, I don't know okay. why. I, I, I can do this. I can imagine I'm, I'm pulling myself into a different posture. These are all really simple things that surely if I'm just willing to be more present with it, I can make a difference. I can make a 17% difference. And to be honest, everything I hear about cortisol has me going, I actually hate cortisol and I hate the effects it has on my body. And yet, I still don't want to where do up. I exist? <laughs> I exist in a world of cortisol so much of the time by default, by choice, I just kind of assume it's default when it's really probably choice and I'm uncomfortable. That was also one of my questions for you is pain tolerance. Yeah. I feel as though it doesn't take much for me to experience pain. Right. And super randomly. Sometimes when I'm really concentrating on something, I can hurt myself and not and not realize. That's pretty rare mm -hmm. that it, I could look down and go, how am I bleeding? What did I do? Other times it's like, what giant monster just bit me? The pain is so huge for a relatively small wound. And I'm like, what is my problem here? That I feel pain even when I didn't see it happen. And that is a, a recent alpha mode cue that I've found is because our neurons are not being repaired actively and they're not firing appropriately when they haven't been allowed to heal in a long time, especially that our pain responses are just disproportional. And I have a hard time even falling asleep because I lay on my shoulder, my shoulder starts hurting. I know it's not the bed. It's the fact that I've been in alpha mode for too long. Hmm. And that was a very recent discovery, like literally in the last few weeks. How did I miss this? The baseline of pain was so much different that I can actually measure it. Can I sleep on my shoulder or can I not? And it doesn't have to do with any other factor other than stress. I haven't changed my weight. I haven't really changed my eating patterns. It's just stress. This is knowledge that is going to change my world. I don't know that I'm going to stop being so alpha, <laughs> but I hope I do because this knowledge, because I hate pain. It's too severe. Disproportionate is exactly the word for it. I hate hurting. And there are so many things that are painful to me and have me going, come on. I was coming from more of a science background. So I'm excited for the fusion of two worlds where things like meditation and medicine can come closer together in a more complete way. The idea of sitting in the lotus posture, partially just because of because of my accident and my back hurting, just sounds incredibly uncomfortable. And I still don't even think I could do it. Maybe I, I've recently started, you know, trying out some yoga and different things. So I'm not I'm not ruling it out. But the process of trying to clear the list, like, okay, right now I'm just gonna say I have no priorities, start over with a blank list. I thought it was so ridiculous when, you know, you'd hear these meditation people saying just clear your mind that was <laughs> that was so triggering to me like, that, like that right there has me going oh clearly i can't meditate why do i want to i have all these great things yeah i have things i don't want but i have all these great things and it's not that anyone said that i've realized try to clear your list your priorities list and see what you can't erase this intrusive thought just keeps coming okay write it down 
What is it? Identify it. That's the only the goal of meditation. You don't have to like solve it all in that moment, but to be able to identify and say, yeah, this thought about me and my parents or me and my significant other or me and whoever keeps cycling through my mind. Okay, well, that's what you should work on. State the problem. You can start if you take your blood pressure or you could just identify it yourself. What would I rather not think about? Or in what way do I feel my hands are tied? And then write it out without censoring it at all. And then look for all the things that you're trying to control or all the emotionally charged words like always or never and identify them and then make some kind of conclusion about what was the motivation behind trying to control the things you can't or shouldn't control and what's your new assumption about life and then write a goal. And that kind of three-step thing of identifying what's stressing you out, just free writing it, what your conclusion, your, your better conclusion about life and love from that, and then a goal that you can work on will solve a lot. That should be the new model for meditation. Not like the only model. Obviously, there's other things that meditation can do, but starting there is the best springboard I can imagine. Mm -hmm. Because how, if your list permanently has written on in Sharpie (laughs) things that you didn't even want to be there, they were things from traumas or social pressures you couldn't get rid of. Yeah. Why would that be the permanent part of your list? I think of stories we keep repeating or regrets. That's the better word. Regrets that we just remember. Oh, I'm just going to remember that regret and feel stress about that yet again for no reason. You know, we have such a hard time letting go of the past. Just that mini replay of that regret story, no doubt, increases your cortisol. So how many of those can you just stop playing? Yeah, it's a pass. You can't do anything about it. You can set a goal for, okay, well, what have I learned from that past that I can change in the future? Okay, cool. But you can't change the past. There are things that you've done that a certain person is never going to forgive you. Okay. That's something, one, you can't change. Just start there. Probably shouldn't even try. Yeah. I wish we had this type of information over the decades. That would be interesting. As the world has changed, as relating to people has changed because we relate differently than we used to, it would be really interesting if only we had that. I think part of the motivation to push ourselves beyond our limitations is because of what we can potentially gain. One witty statement you make could possibly get you world famous and make you lots of money. And that never used to be the case. That never used to be the case. Uh You had to have an agent. You had to have Uh a platform. You had to have a title behind you. And now, one witty line. If I say to you, backing up, backing up. Right. You know exactly. Meet me outside. Catch me outside. Catch me outside. There you go. Right? Yeah, it's true. So that's actually something that someone has to deal with is that's a possibility. And am I ready for it? Another thing that was interesting as I researched about baboons, the troop maximum size is 200. When it gets beyond 200, it's unsustainable. I also found in another research, unrelated to baboons, said that the maximum amount of human connections was 200. That we're in a state where your social media account probably has more than 200 friends. So you're at a biologically unsustainable amount of connection, whatever that means, in a social media context, not to dismiss it. But you typically aren't adding strangers on social media. They're people that you interacted with. And to have all these people we want to interact with 
that we added them so that we could interact with them again. And yet we don't. That's also kind of a burden. I'm not doing enough. I haven't even talked to so-and-so in six months or a year, two years. To split your time and your energy 200 ways is very difficult. The reality is we're in a very stressful and complex time. It wasn't very long ago when once it was nighttime, unless you had a candle, you're sleeping. Yeah. What are you going to read a book, right? So you're like, oh, I have my candle, my book. Yeah. Like, that wasn't very long ago. Yeah. And we're in a world now where I feel put out when there's not a food place open at midnight. Right. I'm like, what is this city? Like, they're all sleeping? <laughs> and there's cities that never sleep. And New York's not the only one. It doesn't even take a large city nowadays for it to not sleep. Right. All it takes is a few franchises. Yeah. So if before, all the countries realized it was a benefit to make a law, like everyone quiet from 1 o'clock to 2 o'clock, the idea of a siesta goes around the world. I mean, from Mexico to Greece to apparently Romania. And it has some survival benefit that people intuitively or even with data realized. And we've just moved away from it. Like, no, not only do we not want a siesta, we don't want to close at all. 24-7, we're open. We need to be smarter about the stuff that will help our body. Lack of cortisol and... Acetylcholine. Acetylcholine. <laughs> yeah. I think we need to be in touch with our Is there emotions. an acetylcholine supplement? <laughs> no. See, that's the problem. See, we're trying to stiff arm every problem that we have. Yeah. I want an immediate solution. Let's force acetylcholine. I realize it's a problem. Immediately want it fixed. Ah. And that's part of it. There should be a 17% delay. The 17% should go across the board. And it's something that I came up with from several different areas, even just the idea of one out of seven, the idea of like a Sabbath day, what I kind of came to conclusion on my own was I only trusted 80% of what I said. And so I had that number for years and I felt really good about it. it leaves 20% room for what you don't know that you don't know. Uh-huh. Well, then like I, a friend was like, oh, it's kind of like the 80-20 rule of economics. Oh, that's true. And then to find the study about baboons and the cortisol and the 17% decrease making it 10 times difference in cortisol is like, wow, this number, this ratio just keeps coming back. I don't know that's an exact science, but somewhere within that range, we should try to aim for. Pain is a good motivation. Pain <laughs> is absolutely a good motivation for it. And realizing that you're done with making pain a flex and you just want it gone. Yeah. The thing is, is it's not going to be an immediate fix. It's not like a medication. It's just, boom, pain gone. Oh, I accepted the 17%. Like, I made a list, cut off one out of every five things. Like, why is my pain still here? We've spent years in alpha mode. All the damage that has accrued from that is not going to go away overnight. Certain things might take a whole year of being most religious about not controlling things we shouldn't or can't control. A new habit is really hard to maintain anyway. Like it almost doesn't matter what it is. If you aren't somebody who has like severe routine, which most of us don't have severe routine to adopt a new habit, like standing up straight and being, being aware of your posture multiple times an hour, if you can, we're just going to be bad at it. It is what it is. So why, why do we hunch over forward? The thing is, is that if we're 
flexing our trapezius, it's so that we can stabilize our shoulder, which is what we're going to use to fight. You can't punch someone without flexing your trapezius. Your arm would just fly out of your socket. Your arm is hooked to your scapula, which just floats on your back, held in place by muscle. So if you don't stabilize that, it's going to break the whole system. Several really weak points in the shoulder. But when you stabilize it, okay, now you can push or pull, punch. Growing up, lots of people would tell me, stand up straight, stand up straight. Why Don't slouch. And I remember wanting to do it. I remember wanting to not slouch, but I couldn't. I thought maybe it was later. I thought maybe it was because I was tall and I didn't want to be towering over people. But then I realized you think about boxers or wrestlers or even, I guess, martial arts people. They're leaned forward, leaned into be able to have power behind whatever they're doing. They have their hands out in, their, out in front of them as a stopping point for whatever the other person is going to do. You look at each of the postures of boxing and wrestling. Yes, they're a little bit different, but they're definitely hands about out in front of them. So what I found is unless you're Bruce Lee or, you know, you're not going to like want to engage in a fight standing straight up and down all your way over your spine, a static position, not like you're not really able to move because muscles are what is moving you hands down. I even put like my palms forward, which I feel is a more non-defensive posture. Vulnerable. Yeah. It's so vulnerable. In fact, if you, if you try to stand there and tell that you, you, you've, feel the least amount of resistance, you can't actually even see the lower part of your body, which when you lean forward, you can cover your vital organs, your chest, your stomach. That's why we hunch over is to protect our vital organs hmm. because our body, that brings us back to an idea I didn't quite finish was I think that the trapezius muscle being one of the only muscles that's connected to your brain and not your spinal cord is key because it's what tells our body that we're that the brain is anticipating a fight. Mm. So it says, the brain says, I see a risk. I see a, a, a threat. It tenses the trapezius. The trapezius sends off signals. Even the presence of lactic acid or something very simple has those, those signals that then key, cue the, other, the rest of the body into the fact that there's going to be a fight. That's so interesting. And so I found that in relaxation, if I focus mainly on that muscle, and most people have neck pain or lower back pain, mm-hmm. but just focusing on that, even though I typically didn't have neck pain, focus on that muscle is what helped me the most. Okay, I'm going to do this. You got it. I um, believe in you. I'm going to try so hard. <laughs> no. <laughs> Don't try so hard. <laughs> just, just. I'm going to aim for 17%. How's that? <laughs> Sounds great. I'm gonna aim. 80, 83%. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 17, 17% less than you feel pressured yeah. by society yeah. or 17 just sounds to easier to reach. To find, I'll go ahead and say grace <laughs> for myself to reduce the cortisol. Because if I can achieve 17%, I can achieve 10 times less cortisol. Yeah. I mean, you're doing awesome things. You got a lot of cool things going on. There's no coincidence that we're friends. You have a lot of things that that benefit a lot of people. And it seems hard to take that and be like, well, what can I chop off this? But when you actually take the time to identify what the most meaningful parts and the least meaningful parts are, it's like, you know what? Actually, yeah, I could get rid of that least meaningful part. And that's all you have to do. It's just a small 
small decrease. You you have a, a $83 <laughs> dinner instead of a $100 dinner. Lean to passion too. Yeah. Because you have all those competing things you could lean into, the frustration, everything. And who you are is you are an ability to choose what you lean into. Cool. We can do this, guys. <laughs> I have listeners that are regulars. We can do this. Right? <laughs> I'm pretty sure we can. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate you coming. No problem. It's my pleasure. Yeah. Love to do it again. It's awesome to share this passion of yours in a way that people can actually benefit and change stuff they want to change. So. I hope you get feedback of positive change. Thank you. Thank you.